Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. The podcast where we take movies seriously, just not ourselves. Ooh, whoa, I didn't expect this from the intro. I know, right? Switching things up a little I bit. I like it. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. the Gargoyle. And I'm Eric, a.k.a. the Chimerican. Uh, and there's also another new thing that we get to add uh, in our episodes. Really? Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed so uh so natural you did yeah i know yeah so we are now sponsored by central cinema and knoxville horror film fest i know right i know it's awesome yeah (laughs) we we talk enough about them anyways that it only makes sense to have them as a sponsor right i mean this is pretty much you know what we were going for anyway right like (laughs) (laughs) what you want to sponsor us no way but that is super exciting. It is really, um, yeah. And even though we're going through talking about Chat Film Fest, um, going to go ahead and do a plug for Knoxville Horror Film Fest. Submissions are already open, so you've got six months until the film fest. Um, so start making your movie now. Yes. Well, start making it in the past and submit it now because submissions are open. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you start making it in the past, that's great. But if you don't. You could probably still crank something out. I mean, yeah, I don't know when submissions close, but I know they're late-ish, so there's still plenty of time to uh, to get a horror short made and submitted. They also do the uh, the Grindhouse Grindout, which which, is so much fun. Yeah, like that's that's several months from now, anyways, where they like give you a a theme and you have like a week, I think, to uh, Mm. to do a Grindhouse short. So, yeah. Yeah. Also, Central Cinema has a ton of great movies uh, that are coming up. I don't have the list in front of me, but I know that they're doing some cat videos. I know. I saw that, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty awesome because I, I spend a lot of my evenings watching cat videos, especially right. like if my children are upset, like one of the easiest way, like right before bed or something, one of the easiest ways to get them to calm down is like, hey, check out this hilarious cat and see what it's doing. And they're like, what? What? Let me see. Let me see. So, uh, yeah. That's something that, uh, <laughs> like, seeing cat videos on the big screen is uh, kind of ideal for me. Like, that sounds pretty amazing. It is a, uh, like, it's a very weird, like, why would you watch cat videos on the big screen, except for it just also seems like a lot of fun. Oh, I yeah. I mean, you know, like, everything is terrible. It is basically just a bunch of YouTube clips, and it is one of the most fun shows ever, which we'll talk about as we talk about uh, the Chattanooga Film Fest. So, yeah, like, it uh, it makes sense. Um all right, so some of the movies that they've got coming up. Um, oh, wait, no, this is the past one. Dang it. I was looking for the one that they had for the upcoming movies. They've got a lot of indie movies uh, that they're about to screen. Um, I, I saw playing William that Post. surfer movie, the Christian <sighs> surfer film that has. I thought they already played that one. No, they're playing it this weekend, too. They're like, they're doing an encore, I guess. Okay. It must have had a great reception then. Um, yeah, they're doing a lot of indie films, and there was one that, oh, um, uh, Starfish Mixtape. They're screening. Starfish, up that's soon. right, yes. Yeah. That movie uh, screened at the Frightening Ass Film Fest this last October, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I missed it, but I've heard nothing but great things about it. So, yeah, whatever you like, Central Cinema definitely has um, has something planned for you. Yeah, and they've been playing Dragged Across Dragged Across Concrete um, this month, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to be playing it like for the rest uh, for the rest of the month. And uh, I'm dying to see that movie because it's from S. Craig Zoller, who did uh, Bone Tomahawk and um, Brawl and Subblock '99. Mm-hmm. They're like just fantastic genre movies, and I'm really excited to see. And this new one has a. Uh, Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson in it as like some crooked cops. So it's kind we, of like we need to move to Knoxville. We really do. Yeah. <laughs> I know. 
Yeah, Central Cinema is an amazing theater, and we are going to talk even more about it um, all the time because they're a sponsor now. It's, it's fun. So we it's, have it's, just, to. it's just fun to say. But even if we didn't have to, we would want to. <laughs> it's not because we have to. We would talk about it just because we want to. I just like pretending to be cynical. It's fun. <laughs> the weird thing is, like, you're the nicer one of the two of us. I know. <laughs> See, it's, this is what's great about the podcast is I get to play a character that I'm not normally. So, you know. I get to I get to flex my acting chops a little bit, so that sure, way sure. next time I do a Christmas spectacular, I can more convincingly say that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. No, half the fun was you just kind of playing that so not seriously. Well, no, but next time we got to play it serious. We got to do this for real. So next time we're just going to repeat the same Christmas spectacular. We're doing a reboot of the <laughs> no. of Christmas spectacular twenty eighteen for so twenty nineteen. We're going to do the same exact podcast over. But less cheesy. That sounds like a We're doing terrible a gr- idea. A gritty reboot of Christmas Spectacular. Okay, that actually sounds like an awesome <laughs> idea. Probably because not this year. But gritty reboots are, you know, kind of well, they're in, in vogue. A unless bit. you're RoboCop, then you start with a gritty movie and you tone it down progressively more <laughs> childlike or yeah. child appropriate as it goes on. Yeah, you know, none of that is what we're talking about right now, right? Yes, I know. Let's let's move okay. on. I, I'm, I'll stop derailing the podcast. <laughs> So we're continuing on with our Chat Film Fest pre-coverage by talking about the past year's Films Fests. I don't know why I keep adding the S's. It just Films Fests? Yeah. I, I think it works. It, fil, fil, well, I guess it would just be Film Fests. The but Festivals whatever. of Films. Anywho. The, or what, how was it that I put it in my last tweet? I was very proud of this. It was uh, I said I was revisiting the Film Festivals of Chattanooga's past. Yes. <laughs> like the ghost of Christmas past. Exactly. But that was festivals of Christmas past. Uh, festivals of Chattanooga past. Anywho, it's a terrible beginning. <laughs> Just cut all this shit out. <laughs> we're starting over. Hello. and No, no, we don't have time to start over. Uh, yeah, so we're going back and talking about the previous year's film fests um, because this is going to be the... Um, April 11th through 14th is going to be at your first Chattanooga Film Festival. It is. So we're doing this as sort of a uh, um, sort of a preview of this is what to expect, but also it's only going to give like the tiniest of glimpses mm-hmm. because the Film Fest is so much more awesome than the movies. Ooh, hot take. Yeah. Well, no, because no, we've, no, totally we've been that. saying this each time. The movies are awesome. The movies are totally worth seeing, which is why we have been spending all this time talking about it. But the Film Fest is, like, you can't even compare the two. Like, you can't just talk about the movies, even though that is, like, why people go to a Film Fest. But that's just such, like, it's the smallest part, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's all of the other stuff that make it that much more awesome. Oh, yeah. Anywho, the movies from 2018. um, And mentioned this on the previous episodes, but um, the movies that we're covering, the criteria for, um, for which movies we picked... First off, they had to be movies that I saw during the years the, uh, that I was there. They're Secondly, the only ones that matter. They're not the only ones that matter. They're the only ones <laughs> that I'm able to talk about if I don't have time to go back and rewatch them. Yeah, because you don't have time to go back and rewatch them, but I have to cram in like <laughs> six movies in one week. Exactly. This is getting you ready for the film fest of just, <laughs> I've watched too many things. Now, when can I watch more? And you just wanted a break, apparently. No. I'm kidding. Kind of. All right, no. I'm done. I'm okay, done. So. I'm done being. I'm done no, you're uh, not. being antagonistic. For today. <laughs> no, you're not. And I love it. Uh, so they had to be movies that I saw during the film fest. The second criteria is they have to be available somewhere online. Um, so 
somewhere that we already have access to streaming. So, you know, Hulu, uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, just because it's easier that way. And then they also have to be movies that like represent part of what the film fest is like and not just an awesome movie on its own. And that seems kind of weird because a lot of the movies are great movies, but that's not necessarily why they were chosen. And there's some other really awesome movies that they're great movies, but the experience of watching it at the film fest wouldn't have been that much different from just watching it in any movie theater. Um, so like one of the ones that I absolutely love that I we're going to at least talk about a little bit, uh, the last movie star, you know, watching it in watching it at the film fest wasn't a drastically different experience from watching it in any other theater. It's a great movie, totally worth seeing. Super glad that they showed it because I, I loved it and it was uh, a bit of a comedic break from some of the other really dark, really heavy stuff that I was watching. Um, but it it doesn't compare to like uh, watching all the creatures were stirring and having Rebecca uh, McKendry there to talk about the film. So you know, it just is a little bit different in terms of when people are actually there. So that had to be part of the criteria as well. Like how does it actually represent that year's films fest film fest? One of these days I'm going to stop dropping or stop adding the S maybe it's because I watch Metalocalypse too much. You know, I've never actually watched Metalocalypse. It's a really, really fun show. I, I, I should watch it because like, I kind of like death clocks music. Oh, it's great music. Um, so I should probably check out that show. You, I, I think that you would love it. Probably. Or hate it and hate me. But realistically, you would love it. Yeah. All right. So the movies that I saw during 2018, and these are not in order because um, when we covered them, or when I covered them for the 2018 coverage, uh, I didn't cover them in the order that I saw them. And I don't think that I have that list of the order in which I saw them. So these are just all the ones that I saw. Uh, November, Lesser Beasts, Ninja Zombie, presented by Bleeding Skull. The Watch These Films, a block of shorts with Alan Anders live at the Comedy Castle circa 1987. BFF Girls, Come On Mandy, Hector Felix, Homer A, Cetaceous, Socks on Fire, Stay, The Accomplice, and Weird. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs, his talk, um, Everything is Exploitation, Sociopolitical Themes and Horror with Izzy Lee, where she was talking about, again, sociopolitical themes and horror. Uh, Ghost Stories, Gemini, The Last Movie Star, Night of the Comet, Let the Corpses Tan, Mohawk, Power of Glove, Wolfman's Got Nards, The Ranger, All the Creatures Were Stirring, My Monster, short film uh, paired with All the Creatures Were Stirring, Rock Steady Row, Dementia Part 2, Heartless, a short film paired with Dementia, uh, Low Life, A Prayer Before Dawn, Summer of 84, Tigers Are Not Afraid, and then my interview with Matt Mercer, Graham Skipper, and Kevin Sluter. Damn. That was a such lot. a full festival. <laughs> like somehow it feels like a fuller festival than the previous years. Yeah, like that seems that seems like a lot. Like I don't even I don't know what it is. Like they just maybe they're all shorter and you crammed more in or something. I don't know though. A prayer before dawn is like two hours. Yeah, two hours. And November I think is over two hours. November was a very long, very interesting movie. I. Man, November is a it's it's an experience. Yeah, that's one of the ones I haven't I haven't seen yet. I want to because they <laughs> talked about it on like Pure Cinema and a few other podcasts too, and it sounds fascinating. Question mark. There is no way to possibly prepare for November. 
like anything that I would say in terms of like, oh, this is the kind of cinematic experience that you're going to go into. It's like, but, but it's not, or like, oh, you could watch this and this will let you know kind of what you're going to get into. Well, it's like very like, it seems like it's very steeped in like Estonian folklore or something. Like you probably have to have a PhD and (laughs) they're kind of like mythology to understand it is my understanding of how that, how that movie works. But, but then there's also just like a, a very basic and simple love story at its core. And and it's also just very weird. Yeah. And the devil is there, but he's kind of like um uh, kind of like Radagast in the most recent Hobbit movie. Oh yeah. Like just, just very weird and <laughs> God, it's weird. Sounds very interesting. Um all right, yeah. So those are all the ones that I saw. Not all of those are available streaming, and we're not going to talk about all of them at length because we just do not have time for that. Uh, but there are a few that we're going to highlight and um, and then sort of talk about like why that represents the film fest. Let's start with the one that you already mentioned, A Prayer Before Dawn, just because you already mentioned it. Okay. And because oh my god, it is such a it it is it takes a toll on me emotionally. So. Let's get that one out of the way, and then we can talk about some of the more fun ones as we uh, okay. move on through the episode. That works for me. Uh, and and again, I mentioned this in the previous episodes, we're not doing the full reviews, so we're not going through our standard prior information, technical, emotional, rewatchability, and uh, recommendations. Uh, we'll probably touch on you know some aspects of each of that, but not nearly as much depth. But just in general, what what you think of A Prayer Before Dawn? It's... It's the one movie from like all of the movies we've revisited for this series that like it feels really different from everything else. Like it's, I don't want to say it's not a genre film because it's very much rooted in like both the prison movie tropes and boxing movie tropes. Um, So it's definitely genre, but it feels more of a more like a drama like almost more like an oscar bait kind of film well it's also like based on a real story and it's based yeah it's based on um a mem- memoir that was written by i can't even think of the guy's name billy moore yeah billy um, moore yes um so it was interesting and the one that like okay i'm trying to think of where to start i'm gonna start <laughs> with right i'm gonna start with joe cole because he plays billy moore and he is absolutely extraordinary in as the protagonist of this film, like his acting is just incredible. It's such a physical performance. Like, um, it's, it kind of blew me away because I'd only seen him in one other thing. Like he's on Peaky Blinders. Um, and he plays, uh, the drummer of the band in green room. Mm-hmm. And so like, that was kind of the only thing that I knew him from prior to seeing this movie. And it was just, I, I don't know, the for performance in this movie just kind of comes out of nowhere. I feel like where, um, you know, he plays a heroin addict who goes to prison in Thailand and, you know, he gets into like this kind of prison boxing ring of some sort. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a brutal movie and he commits himself like wholeheartedly. There's this really incredible level of authenticity to the film. Um, like they actually got real ex-convicts who, you know, were in prison in Thailand to mm-hmm. be in the extras in the film um, you know, it's got that kind of <clears throat> shaky cam thing going on that I don't particularly like in most cases, but in this film, like it, it makes sense. Like it kind yeah. of naturally reflects this guy's life and like the experiences he's going through in the prison. Um, not really a fun movie to watch. No, not a fun movie at all, it's, but an amazing movie. Well, it's, it's beautifully made. It's like 
the boxing scenes are so brutal and so like just the like there's one boxing scene kind of in the middle of the film that's shot to look like it was a single take um and it's just it's masterfully done and they do the, i don't even know if this is really how they do it but what it looked like to me is they like in a lot of cases when like he throws a punch they cut a frame mm-hmm. so like it makes it just look like almost like um a jump cut to him somebody being punched that just makes it feel so much more visceral i don't know it's it's pretty incredible um ultimately i i like the movie i do feel like it leans a little too much into like the prison and boxing tropes that you see in pretty much every other movie like I hate to say that because this is obviously based on a real person's life, but like it's it's a, almost a little too cold and objective for me. Like there's there are tons of scenes where it's just like focusing on Billy just kind of laying down and staring up at the ceiling for like thirty seconds, or there's like tons of boxing montages, and I don't know. It feels like it could be cut a little bit to make it a tighter film, and you don't ever really get to understand him as a character very well. I mean, you kind of do based on like just what he does, but you don't get inside his head very much. And so like toward the end of the film, I don't know. I just didn't connect with it emotionally, even though like it's brutal and devastating and you're like shocked by the things that are happening. Like I never really felt it like on a gut. I don't know. I felt it on a gut level and not on like we, an emotional level. We are so, so like, different. I don't so, know. All right. So for me, um, like, I actually really enjoy the fact that you don't quote get into his head because it's more, it's less of going through the movie as him and more of like going through the movie as just an observer right there. Yeah. Next to him. And that, that makes sense for the movie. And I, I, I don't even really mean it as a criticism, I guess, because like that really seems like it should be, it's the best way to do it. I feel like the movie just kind of runs out of steam toward the end a little bit where there's like, again, him training for this one boxing match. It just kind of, it feels a little repetitive there toward the end, which I mean, mean, again, I I could see that since most of the movie is boxing and it is uh, about fighting, but like, but that's the thing is it's not about fighting. And when I watched the trailer, I thought that it was going to be much more of like a Rocky goes to prison style mm-hmm. movie. You know, even though it says very clearly in the trailer based on uh, true events, based on the memoir by Billy Moore, like I wasn't expecting it to be just so gut wrenching. I was expecting mm-hmm. it to be more of like a victory story. And I got something so entirely different because it just throws you into this is not a likable character. Yeah. Like even though Billy is the main character and there's things about him that are a little enduring. And by the end of it, you are kind of rooting for him. I, I don't know. Like overall, it's just like, I I'm rooting for him, but I'm not like, he's not like your good stand up guy. Like, Oh, he just fell on hard times. It's like, no, like the two minutes into the movie, he's shoving condoms of heroin up his butt because he knows that he's about to get arrested. Like he's not just trying to work his way through life. Well, he's also like, you don't really get <clears throat> too much backstory, but in the movie, it looks like he's gone to Thailand to box and he's boxing like in this, I guess it's some kind of underground boxing ring where they have children boxing each other. Yeah. And one of the kids will like, like comes to visit him later in the film. And it's just like, he was, he was into some pretty shady shit. Like, I don't know what exactly was going on there, but definitely doesn't seem like something most people would be okay with. Yeah. Like it throws you right into the middle of the story. I don't know if I, 
Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. It definitely does. I don't know if I if I necessarily think he's a bad person. I think that he's an addict, and because he's addicted to heroin, he is willing to compromise many different aspects of you know his morality to right. get a fix. And, well, and that's I a don't, big part of the. I, I, I didn't even mean mention that, that. It has a lot of the drug, like of an addiction kind of story too. It like throws together all these familiar story elements into a stew so, and so i didn't mean that he was a bad person because he's addicted it oh, was sorry, yeah. no no um it was more of a he's not presented as this is very clearly your hero who is doing everything right who made some mistakes like it is okay, presented gotcha. as a very real life this is a guy who is going through hard times and if there is any redemption story like it, it's going to be a hell of a redemption story. It, mm-hmm. It's almost like the people who are in the movie who are presented as the antagonists are shown as even worse than he is. Yeah. And like, I think that that's part of why it's just such a, why, why it's so visceral to watch. Like, I mean, there's a prison rape scene that I still don't know, like how they got away with showing as much as they show, but they also don't show as much as they show. It It's a very weird and very tactful way that they, uh, like got yeah. around what you actually see, mm-hmm. but you still see like just a very it's it's brutal. Like it's the entire brutal, movie yeah. is brutal. Yeah, no, and I think the thing for me with this movie, like I said, it's 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 a fantastic movie. I didn't. I don't. I. I was never really surprised by anything that happens. Like, I mean, even though this is a, a real life story, and you know the way that it's done is very different from a lot of these types of films. It's still, and it's like, it's much, it's a much darker kind of version of, you know, boxing or prison movies or even prison movies that you would, than you would expect. Um, I don't know. There wasn't really anything that surprised me throughout the film. Like it did feel like it was just kind of taken off the boxes of like, oh, this is what you, you get the prison rape. You get like, here's, here you are in solitary confinement. Here's, you know, the two, the gangs that you kind of have to, you know, insinuate yourself with. But because it was interesting because it, it was Thailand, you get like the language barrier. I mean, there are definitely some wrinkles in there that make the movie worth watching. And I feel like I'm being harsher to the film <laughs> than I should be. <laughs> no, no, you're critiquing it. And I'm just, I mean, this is kind of how I feel too. Like, and it's not even like if you like these kind of movies and you're okay, like you think you can stomach this kind of stuff because again, it is much more. It's much darker than you would. It's not the Shawshank Redemption or anything like that. I mean, right. it's uh, so, it's bru- or it's not Rocky either. It's, so it's brutal. A phrase that I've been saying a lot lately in discussing um, movies with friends, um, especially when talking about Harry Potter. I see where you're coming from, but this is why you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it, a Prayer Before Dawn isn't supposed to be like a movie with plot twists and like it's not supposed to have anything surprising because it's not trying to create a story. It Mm. is showing this is what happened in this guy's life. And like, I think about it in terms of, you know, like if you've ever known anyone who did have an addiction Mm. and not necessarily relating their story to, uh, to believe more story, but if you've ever known anyone who had an addiction, and you think about like any sort of drama or comedy or any type of movie that has someone who is an addict and you think to yourself, oh, well, that's just kind of a stereotype. But then you think of the person that you actually know and it's like, well, they're just kind of a walking stereotype, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So like there's so many things that happen in real life that 
if you were to put a real person's experiences in a movie, it would feel too cliched, you know? Right. Well, and see, this is why I'm this is why I'm always a champion for people taking dramatic license with stories. Like, I hate it, and I don't hate it. I mean, I understand why people feel this way, but like, if you're ta- if you're adapting a novel or if you're taking making a biopic about someone, you can't just tell the story of their life. Like, I feel like there has to be. You have I think to it add in the drama. kind of movie that you're going for. And yeah, I th- I think that's true. But in my mind, I feel like a person's life is so much more mundane than we realize. Even if it's somebody who's kind of cool or extraordinary or something, have they gone through something like if you actually were to sit there and go through it with this person, it's probably kind of mundane. So to really like get to the truth of what happened in a film or a book or whatever, I think that you kind of have to add some drama to it to really understand it from that perspective. I disagree. Like, I think that if you're going for a drama based on a person's life, Mm -hmm. yes. But if you're going more of a, like, treating it more like a biography, then I I don't think that you should have some of that um, dramatic license because I don't think that you need to add in stuff that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Especially because some of the stuff, yeah, it might be mundane, but that's part of their story and maybe why they did the things that they did is because of how mundane some of these things might have seemed to other, or how exciting it might have seemed to other people, but how mundane it was in their own experiences. Well, and again, I think for this story, like I, I, I'm, I'm dogging <laughs> on it. I feel like for this movie, I, it makes sense because you so. really, it's really like getting to the truth of what that experience was like. You know, my wife is actually going to Thailand on a study abroad trip this, this year. And, uh, I was sitting here like, yeah, this definitely makes me feel better about her going to Thailand. <laughs> well, tell her to leave heroin at home and it'll be okay. Yeah, probably. You know, we'll see. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, I was watching. I was like, yeah, well, they have all the bad people here in the prison. So, you know, the, the streets will be fine. She'll be okay out there, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that I do love about like just the cinematic piece of the movie, there's hardly any music in there whatsoever. Like there's some very, very slight uh, music to kind of give it just background noise. Mm. But you don't have like the, okay, this is the training montage. Now let's have the big epic, like, yeah, he's going to win. Like, again, there's some music, but it it's minimal. It's so really... it really adds, or like, it really brings you into, again, more of like that documentary feel. Yeah. Uh, even with the shaky cam. Typically, I hate shaky cam movies. Like, I hate it when they're trying to force you into feeling like you're a part of the action. Mm. But this is done in such a way where it feels like they just handed one of the inmates a camera and said, watch you know mm-hmm. like it, it has more of that feeling and i think that's because they really focused on the characters and on the overall experiences and the cinematographer just understood the motion and the action rather than trying to force you into action you know yeah um i also love the fact that you understand what billy understands so they subtitle the things that are said in English, but with just a very thick Thai accent. Yeah. Like when people are speaking Thai, maybe there's a little bit of uh, subtitles. A, well, because he, I mean, it, you get it a little bit more frequently as time goes on because he starts to pick up on the language. Yeah. But, but yeah, like, especially at the beginning, you have no idea why he's being, well, you know why he's being arrested, but like when the cops are there and they're yelling at him and he's like, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. He knew what was going on, but he didn't understand what they were saying. Right. So you don't get to understand either. And and I love that. I love the fact that you have to pick up based off of like what is actually going on 
to understand what's happening rather than, oh, this person said this. So clearly this is going to be a plot device to set up to this later. You know, like it doesn't have some of those standard movie trappings. It might have Mm -hmm. some tropes of the prison film and the addiction film and a boxing film. But it doesn't have, to me at least, it doesn't have a lot of those trappings of this is what you get from a movie. It's, yeah. This is what you got from his life. Yeah, no, I do like that. I love the, um, like, they shoot everything on location. Um, I mean, it it feels very raw and immediate and authentic. And they also shoot so much, like, almost so much of what happens is shot, like, in almost an extreme close-up. Yeah. Um like you like really feel like you're you're in there with them especially whenever they do the scenes in the with the the boxing scenes. I mean like it is you feel every single thing that happens. And this movie like almost is almost fetishistic in the way that it that sounds so weird saying it out loud. <laughs> it's one of those words that you read that I read but then you say it out loud it's like that sounds weird. Anyway. Right. Um like the way that it focuses on like these men's bodies like there are all these close-ups like showing off their tattoos and showing off like just the sweat pouring down their bodies as they're training and showing off like their muscles like there are tons of times where the camera just like it's almost like how the male gaze is like in on like a nude woman in an 80s slasher film or something it's like panning up and down their bodies as yeah. like he's being massaged before like they're rubbing the oil onto his skin before the fight or like whenever they're um they're practicing boxing or whenever they're just like hanging out in their prison cell and like the way that they have everybody just kind of like stacked almost on top of each other when they're sleeping like you get tons of shots where it's just panning across everyone just to show you see i didn't get that as a sort of male gaze on the male well that's not I, what I, I don't think that's what i that's I, not i, I know that's not i know that's not that's what, what it meant. felt like kind of I, I see i didn't get that feeling i got the feeling of this is just like grimy and sweaty mm. and dirty. So like exactly. to me, the close-ups weren't to highlight the body. It was to show like the individual beads of sweat and dirt. So like, I, I don't know, like that's, that's more of what I got from it is just like you feel just gross and sticky just watching this movie just because of, again, all that sweat and all that dirt mm-hmm. and to me that's why um why the close-ups and like why the panning it wasn't to be like here let's show all of these guys it's this is how cramped their living quarters were yeah no i i get that um i do think that this movie like part of it i had to watch on my phone just to find time to get the film watched before this so like i really really wish that i could have seen it on a big screen Mm mm-hmm to like just really get engrossed in it. And I had, it took me like three or four times to get through it too, just because I had interruptions or I only had a limited amount of time to watch at certain times. So I do wish that I could have had that big screen experience. Um, yeah. Cause that definitely changes it. And I know that we've talked about that on a few different movies where watching something on your phone, it doesn't have the same effect or like watching a movie and having to pause in between. I, I think we've talked about that. I, hate before, it. I have to do it so much too, but I, and I hate it because yeah, it really I, causes a film to lose <laughs> momentum. I, I love my son more than I can possibly explain. Watching a movie is very difficult now because oh, yeah. like <laughs> e- even if he's taking a nap, it's like sweet. He'll stay asleep for the next two at nope, next 30 minutes. Nope. All right, fine. <laughs> And so, yeah, like you don't have that. Like if you're right in the middle of a very tense scene and you have to pause, 
then you come back to it and like you've lost all of that energy and all of that drama and you're just like what's going on oh right something terrible mm. okay and like you have to get back <laughs> in the headspace yeah. of why is it so terrible but then by the time you do you're on to the next scene and yeah you really lose a lot yeah. a lot by splitting this up and i had to watch it across multiple devices and it didn't always quite sync up something i'm like having to like fast forward or rewind back and forth to catch up to where i was and it wasn't ideal, that's for sure. Now I will. I'm gonna add two more things before we move on, just because I feel like I've been slagging on this movie. And that's see, a, it's a great I, movie. I don't think so. I don't feel like you're saying this movie is terrible. I feel like you're doing the thing that we do. Well, like we started, we take movies seriously. So even with a movie that I think is absolutely amazing and that you think is really good we're able to look at movies and critique through them and say, yeah, it's great. And also like, this is part of our analytic process. And I mean, that's why we do the podcast because talking about movies is just as much fun as watching them. Exactly. Um, so two things I have to say, um, the last 30 or so minutes of this movie, I absolutely love, I mean, from like the last match, to the very end of the film like what happens in that span of time is just like it totally made me rethink pretty much everything that i was feeling about the film <laughs> all the way through the like so everything that you've said up to this point is just like yeah so maybe i wasn't thinking all those things yeah well i mean i don't know like it's just it's fascinating to me sure. the decision that um, that Billy makes at the end of the film, uh, or well, just toward the end of the film. Um, also, you know how in these biopic films, they always have like <laughs> at the end of the movie, they show the real person or whatever. This movie does it in just one of the best ways I think I've ever seen a movie do that. Yeah. And I'm not going to say anything else about it, but I absolutely love what they did with this film. When, where they kind of connect it back to the real Billy Moore. Like, it was it was pretty brilliant, Yeah, I thought. So, uh, I have two things. And, it, before. and that part actually did kind of, like, give me some chills there toward the end. I was like, oh, okay, this is really cool. All right, so all the stuff that you felt in the last 30 minutes is how I felt the entire time. But, you know, it's because I have a heart. Well, um, it's also probably because I managed to watch that whole chunk of the film in one sitting. You know what? <laughs> one that <sitting. laughs> that might have been it. I was able to watch the entire movie in one sitting. Uh, you had to split it up. All right. So my two things before we move on to the next film, because one of them, like, leads directly into the next film. <clears throat> um. So, so you just mentioned that they tie back in the real Billy Moore, even though it was based off of his memoir. And even though, like, I knew that he lived because he had to live to write it to be able for them to make a movie based off of what he wrote, especially towards the end of the film, like, especially those last 30 minutes or so, I didn't know if he was going to live. Like, mm -hmm. there, there was a logically I knew that he at least lived long enough to write a memoir. But at the same time, I genuine, genuinely felt like he was going to die. And no, yeah, I had the exact, like, the, the sense of danger in this movie is pretty palpable. Like, even in the early beginning, like, I, I think, again, because they use, like, real ex-convicts, like, these people know this life, and they they were actually in this, and it's horrifying. Like, it's, I don't feel like it's really that different from an American prison system, necessarily, but it's also, like, they don't have cells. Like, they're just kind of out in the open, and they're, it's almost anarchic, in a way. Yeah. Like, the guards aren't really there. They give them rules, and if they get caught breaking the rules, then, like, there's hell to pay. But other oh, than that, like, God. when they're breaking, like, it's not hard to break, <clears throat> to, it's not, 
how am I trying to phrase it? It's easy to break the rules and not get caught. Right. It's easy to get away with stuff. So uh, speaking of the if they catch you, they punish you. God, there's one scene. You don't see things, but as the guards are taking a prisoner away to beat him for uh, for breaking one of the rules, they turn the PA on. So the rest of the prisoners are hearing him mm-hmm. like getting beaten. And like just, just from the sounds... Like, you, you know that there are chains involved. There is some sort of, like, uh, whip or, like, cat and nine tails or, or something going mm. on. But, like, just hearing it, it was painful and agonizing. Yeah, this is not a fun experience, but it is an amazing movie. That kind of leads into the second thing. Um, so you were at the Knox Horror Film Fest, and you saw how at the end of movies, a lot of people will clap and applaud for the movie. Yes. That is a thing that you typically don't get when you just go to a movie. But when you go to a film fest, like people cheer for the movie, mm-hmm. even if the people who made it weren't there, like there's still that appreciation and um, and, and you still get, uh, again, like the applause and like, you know, people clapping and like, woohoo, as if the person was actually there to hear all of um, all of these congratulations mm-hmm. at the end of a prayer before dawn. Everyone just kind of like st- Stood up and walked out. <laughs> Not in a we didn't like it sort of way, <clears throat> but it was so. I was like, I need a moment to yes collect myself, kind of way. There, there was a collective. I need a moment at the end of this film, and I think that might have been again part of that cinematic experience that you don't get watching it on your phone by yourself. Because when you're done, like whatever movie it is that you watch, you probably don't clap for a movie when you're by yourself. Oh, every time, <laughs> every time. I don't you give, know what you're you give about. the jazz snaps. Uh, they'll come into the room like, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> oh yeah, the jazz snaps. I like that. So, so you probably, in reality, don't actually applaud for a movie when you are by yourself. Most of the time. Most of the time, when you get to the end of a movie, you're just silent and you think about what you just saw. But again, in a theater, especially at the film fest, where everyone is just like cheering and just like, yeah, at at the end of this one, it was just like, we all just kind of sat there for a minute. Just, I don't, (laughs) I totally see that. I was actually, yeah, as you started to tell the story, I was like, I wonder if people clap. Like I could see them clapping because it's great. It's beautifully made movie. Like it's great but at the same time too it doesn't seem like the kind of movie that would have you jumping up and cheering after after yeah especially because the way that it ends it it doesn't end with that sort of um musical tone of this is why everyone needs to cheer and be excited like even some really dark movies that end on a high note they give you that music to remind you we're ending on a high note everything's okay like cheer have fun talk about it maybe talk about why it was sad but everything's okay like this just kind of ends, yeah. In in a way that I feel like things are resolved, but also in a way where it's just the end, yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> so as emotionally wrecking as that movie was, <laughs> the next movie that I saw, the next one that we're going to talk about was Low Life. Yeah. So with Low Life, you <laughs> you did tell me that like you mentioned you're like yeah I watched Low Life after a prayer before dawn so like that was like a nice little 
like it was a fun little break from that movie it's still dark but it was kind of fun so i was going i'm like all right this movie's gonna be fun no it's not fun like no. this movie is so dark dude like That's... holy crap i was like ah man that that was how emotionally wrecking a prayer before dawn was and i was going Lola. into low life it was like i'm so happy now i watched a lot first and then prayer before dawn afterward and I, as i'm watching a lot like this is not a fun movie to be fair, no, it, there are not. parts of it that are fun. It is a, it's a black comedy, so there are parts of the movie that are really hilarious. There are also parts of the movie where, like, you're you get that like hollow feeling in the pit of your stomach, where you're like, uh-huh. oh, I cannot believe they went there with some of this stuff. It's, and they go there with yeah. a lot of that stuff. I mean, Anything that you think they're not going to go there, they probably go there. Okay, first of all, this movie is extraordinarily violent. Um. Yep. Wow. Like it feel it gets to like exploitation levels of violence in certain scenes of the movie, and it feels so weird because. So the the common comparison, of course, I think is to Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Mostly, it's a structural thing, though. I don't feel like the stylistically, it's very similar to a Tarantino film. You do get a little bit of the like kind of. I mean, obviously, a lot of his movies are black comedies um but this movie takes it a little bit blacker and a little less comedier than a quentin tarantino movie <laughs> but the comedy does still hit it does and they even have like a little bit about two uh not hitmen like in pulp fiction but uh two uh bagmen or uh, two goons i guess you would say who are working yeah. for another guy and that feels very kind of uh like jules and um and vincent but uh, for the most part, like most of the little vignettes that you get in this movie are pretty just dark and not very fun. Yeah. Or even whenever they're being fun, they take that fun and they turn it against you um, to like, like, oh, you think this is funny? Well, let's actually follow through with this and show you how not funny it is. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. <laughs> so the last time that I watched it, because I have seen it um, since the film fest and before this. The last time that I was watching it with a friend, there were so many things that we were laughing at, but like mid laughter, it was, oh my God, I feel terrible for laughing at this. Just like, yeah, you should, because it shouldn't be funny, but it is like it, it is done in such a masterful way to where, to where the, it, it's not like a clear delineation between this is dark, gritty violence and here's fun, lighthearted comedy. Like you have the two interspersed, so you're laughing as something terrible is happening, but you know that it's terrible. But then the comedy is also diffusing some of that darker emotion. Yeah, it is well, done so well. It's one of my favorite things is uh, <laughs> so there's a, a luchador character in this film, uh, El Monstro, and every time he calls somebody on the phone, he ends it with this is El Monstro. Like, at the, like he'll say, he'll like go on and be like, I need to find so-and-so. I need to do this. Like he's like really serious or whatever. And then he pauses. It's so this, is, this is El Monstro. And then he hangs up. Like, it's just so funny the way that he does that. So like, yeah, even whenever he's like, he's completely desperate and like, it's just, uh, it's sad. And but, like, they still throw like just one little bit in there. It's pretty fantastically done. And like, it's a dark movie, but it's also highly entertaining in a way oh, that yeah. A Prayer Before Dawn isn't. Because, it, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that, again, as a knock against but, that movie. Because this movie is meant to be, like, just completely, like, we're going to just continuously escalate the situation and continuously make this ridiculous. And 
make you feel something at the same time. A Prayer Before Dawn is definitely much more interested in just being like kind of like gritty and realistic and show you the authenticity of it. This movie is a lot, <clears throat> Low Life is a lot more stylized and just trying to make you constantly go, what the f***? <laughs> so speaking of stylized and uh, relating it directly to a prison bit, one of the best characters in the movie has a swastika face tattoo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I, I because this is on the podcast and not just, you know, like talking to other people, there has to be some additional explanation of that. There is an explanation in the movie as to why he has the face tattoo and it's not because he's racist. Like he even talks about like, look, you be in prison and like try to survive and don't end up getting a tattoo. Like yeah. that's what he was having to do to uh, to survive through prison. But just like everything that he says is just like, you are an idiot. But, but you're making some pretty valid points. <laughs> you're right. So his face tattoo does not have anything to do with necessarily who he is. And at one point where he gets beat up uh, by some people in a uh, Hispanic neighborhood, and he's like, they don't, they don't know me. They don't know my struggle. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so funny because it points out the ridiculousness of, uh, of this character, Randy in his situation. But it also highlights like a lot of very real life things. Like, yeah, you can't just like be a white dude and go into uh, go into a neighborhood of people that aren't you, and like think that you're just gonna be fine or you know just like oh psh, I'm fine I've been through troubles let me tell you why you're not that bad off it's like no dude like don't you realize some of that white privilege that comes along with just yeah. you being you and so like it does it in. In almost like a subversive way to get you to think about things like white privilege and to also think about the fact that just because you're white doesn't mean that you've had everything handed to you on a silver platter. And so like it's again, it's done so well. Well, it's and it's funny too, because the character with the swastika tattoo on his face is probably the, um, the most likable person in the movie. Like the one that you root for the most in a way, like everybody else has like these kind of, pretty serious character flaws that like even though you know in some cases you root for them or not like there's they've done some pretty awful things in their lives or yeah. they're currently doing some pretty awful things because of the situation they're in you know they're all they're all easy to empathize with but the guy with the swastika on his face is the one that like i think is the most easy is the easiest to like identify with he, and root for and he speaks the most reason in yeah. two situations yeah and i absolutely love to like the, where they go with the whole face tattoo and what that kind of ultimately leads into toward the, at the end of the film like the way that pays off yeah is brilliant it, so brilliant it is it is a really really smart film and and again we are not advocating face tattoos and actually you know what get a face tattoo if you want we're not advocating uh, the swastika tattoos <laughs> ever at all not cool there's also uh there's there's uh, one lo oh go ahead uh, no i was just gonna say like that's why like we add in the look it's not because he has a swastika tattoo that he's funny there's just a lot of situations and the tattoo is like directly addressed like it yeah we, we do not support swastika tattoos the one thing at all. <laughs> the one thing about the movie that i found kind of interesting 
that uh, probably was not something they were thinking about when they were making the film, but took on a whole new relevance afterward is that at one point in the movie, he was like, pretty sure the one thing that all people can agree on is that Nazis are evil <laughs> or like Nazis are bad. Like everyone hates Nazis. And it's like, uh, but do they really? It's like, it's unfortunate that that line did not age very well. Well, no, here's the thing. I think that everyone does hate Nazis. Like the only people who, the only people who don't hate Nazis are Nazis. And so like, I think I guess that's true. Yeah. I think that that line did age well because of the fact that like, regardless of all of the different prison gangs, regardless of all of the other shady stuff that's happening in each of these uh, characters lives, like regardless, everyone hates Nazis. And so like, I, I think that it did still age well because of exactly that, you know, like because of, unfortunately our current political climate like i think that it is even more relevant and even more timely to be like yeah you can disagree with people on politics and you can disagree on things like abortion but i you know at least we all hate nazis when yeah when you see captain america punch a nazi in the face you're like okay i'm on board with this (laughs) so so funny story um the the director ryan prowse was there and like so many people who were there, I didn't have a chance to talk to him, which is a shame because he seems like just a super nice and super cool dude. But he was telling a story, um, which is one of the things that I love so much about when the directors or actors or just the people involved are there. Cause you get some of those behind the scenes things. Mm-hmm. He was telling a story about how if you ever make a movie and a character has a swastika tattoo on his face, um, make sure that you apply sunscreen to the rest of their face. (laughs) Apparently. Wow. They did not think about that. And the character who plays Randy then had a swastika tan line. Oh my God. Oh my God. That was exactly the response that, uh, that the audience gave him too. was just laughter, laughter. Oh, that poor dude. Laughter, laughter, laughter. <laughs> that is pretty hilarious and awful. Right? Wow. Yeah. So uh, so before Low Life, there was a short, and uh, I, I forget the name of it right now, and I hate the fact that I'm forgetting the name of it, um, but there was a, a short also directly dealing with racial tensions and, um, and just, you know, how people who are not white deal with things when it comes to the police. There is a, it, it's a bunch of college students and this one African-American uh, comes home and there's a girl just like passed out in a pool of vomit, like a white blonde chick passed out in a pool of vomit. And he's like, I need to call the cops. Wait, I can't. There's a white girl passed out in vomit in the middle of my living room. Mm-hmm. I can't call the cops. <laughs> They're going to think that I did it. And so, like, his uh, his roommate was just upstairs playing video games the entire time. And uh, I, I think that that character was Hispanic, maybe. And so, like, the entire short, it, it was a comedy short, but, again, with very serious overtones. Uh, like, they were bickering about who do they, like, who can call the police because none of them can because they'll just end up. Uh, being assumed that they were the ones who did it. And so eventually they think of one of their friends who seems the most whitest. 
and he's the one who calls the cops and when the cops show up like the rest of the characters are dressed just like super preppy uh-huh. and um you know like just being very just like yes sir officer sir and then the one dude who wasn't even there the entire time is the one like having to explain everything and and again it was done in a very very humorous way and i really hate the fact that i'm forgetting the name of the short because i totally think that everyone needs to see it because it puts you into the uh, puts you into that situation, like things that you would never have to think about. Like if you went home and there was someone passed out on your floor, you would just call the cops. I'm like, yeah, there's this drunk chick on my floor. Like, I don't know how she got here, and the cops would show up and just like, okay, well, thank you, We're, we'll take care of it. But like, I never really had to think about. Wait a second. Will the cops think that I did something if I call them? And yeah. like we talked about with. Um, with get out like it puts you in situations that you might not necessarily have thought of that kind of forces you to think through like oh wait a second how would i deal with this situation if i had to go through the situation Mm -hmm. but unlike get out it's done in a much more comedic way rather than terrifying way but it is still like really really effective like some of the lines that they say are just like i have friends who have said things exactly like that Yep, this absolutely rings true. Yeah, well, and that's one thing that I love most about Low Life too is that like, with throughout all these different characters that they introduce, uh, first of all, like the plotting is just brilliant, and the way that all those characters like kind of come together in the end it just works so well. But second of all, like they all have these struggles that are very rooted in just like these real problems that are often stigmatized, and like I mean, you know, you've got. You know, you've got the heroin addict. You've got um, some people who are just trying to get by. Like, there's a person who has cancer or some kind of terminal illness. I don't think they really say exactly what it is. Oh no, it's a kid- kidney, um, yeah. kidney disease. Um, that that plot point. It's not even necessarily an entire story. Actually, yeah, that entire storyline. But that very specific plot point is probably like the most gut wrenching part of the entire movie. Yeah, and there's no, some pretty is. bad yeah, things so. that happen. But that one specifically, oh God, it, I think it so, it's yeah. rough to even just think about. Well, and then they like they're people. I mean, you know, you've got like former prostitutes, and then you've got, um, you know, there there's this organ harvesting, um, like human trafficking kind of um, business or whatever in the film. That's kind of like the central plot point. And the way that they get people is they have their goons dress up as ICE agents and go bust illegals. No, I like, think that he was a legit ICE agent. Oh, what? well, I yeah. didn't get that because there were, I mean, I, I wasn't sure because I thought about that too. I was, I was like, maybe they are actual ICE agents. But either way, they're using that power to take people who are illegal immigrants. And because, you know, those people aren't going to, nobody's going to notice if they go missing. Yeah. Or if they are noticed, nobody's going to care. Yeah. Um, and so like they take all of these like real, very topical issues and try to examine them in kind of a, a highly stylized way. But at the same time too, like making you think about like, okay, these issues are not nearly as black and white as so many people make them out to be. Like these are real people's lives that we're talking about. Um, I mean, you know, with the kidney thing, it kind of gets into like the healthcare system and how they can't afford to get a kidney or they can't get on the waiting list or whatever. And it's just like, ah, man, as, as entertaining as the movie is like, the more you think about it, the more dispiriting it can be. Like just thinking about like how, I mean, these are real issues that people are really facing. And yeah. obviously we're not, I mean, most people aren't going to be getting involved in some kind of like heinous ring of body or like organ harvesting or whatever. But I mean, still like 
this is something that people really have to face in everyday life. Like the horror that hap- of stuff that happens in this movie is very real. Yeah, and not just um, not just organ harvesting. Like that mob boss also has like a prostitution ring of the girls that he kidnaps. Yeah. So like, and a lot of them are underage and stuff too. And it's yeah. So aside from and even the main, getting like mental health issues and stuff with um, with the luchador, and he's got like this this really he's such a great character and I love the way that they when he like goes into a rage like it just kind of like he starts to scream and then like the noise drowns out and just does like that kind of high pitch ringing and then it cuts to the aftermath of what happened and then you kind of have to piece it together yeah like oh man it's it's really well done but like even like even with him he's obviously got like some kind of like some mental health issues that have gone undiagnosed because he's just like so he's like I'm El Moonstro like I'm somebody that everyone looks up to like I have to do my part and well it's because and, it's uh, been passed down just, from generation to generation yeah and oh man it's yeah, just the, the legacy above all exactly but <laughs> so uh, good. it's such a great movie I, like it's hard to even talk about really because there's so many different and the way it's split up between the different characters and I don't know. It's great. The acting across the board is fantastic. The directing, like, it feels like such a big, big movie, even yeah. though it's obviously an independent film. Like, when I started the movie, I was like, I can't believe that this is just, like, some kind of low-budget film because it feels like a big, epic kind of film, epic crime drama. Yeah. So, two things, um, and, and then we can move on from this one into our next movie. So, the first thing is, you mentioned a little bit ago that things aren't as black and white. So, the main mob boss and the ICE agent, those two are just, like, just pure pieces of trash. Yeah, they don't give them any <laughs> any redeeming qualities. No. They, they are just vile and evil through and through. But aside from those two characters... Every single other character, there's something about them that you absolutely hate and something about them that makes them endearing. But one of the things that I love about the movie, and this is kind of a spoiler, and I'm sorry. uh, It's kind of a spoiler, but whatever. Every single character that you meet that you think, oh, this person is terrible, and here is exactly why, because it starts out with this is why this person is terrible. You then get to know more about what's actually going on in their life, and you're like, Oh, maybe they weren't so terrible. Yeah, or like you see the terrible stuff up front, and then like they kind of dig in beneath that. Like, why is this person acting the way that they are? Yeah, or even some of the characters that when you first meet, they're like, "Oh, this this pure and innocent character. There can't be anything wrong with them." Oh, wait, no, this is that terrible thing that they did. Oh man. So you know, like we've already been talking about a lot of those uh, sociocultural issues that uh, were presented in this movie, but it also does such an amazing job of just like Randy says, you don't know their struggle, mm-hmm. so you cannot judge anyone in this movie except for the main mob boss and the ICE agent. Seriously, those two can just jump on a giant flaming pike. <laughs> Aside from those two, you don't know their struggles, and just like in real life, you might see someone that even if they have things about them that when you look at them, you're like, Oh, this person is pure trash. You don't, you don't know their struggle. They might've been through something and maybe that wasn't their own decision. Yeah. The second thing, and you mentioned um, earlier, and I've talked about this on the podcast and when talking about low life before that the, uh, the comparison of uh, low life to Pulp Fiction or saying that it's the, the spiritual, spiritual successor to Pulp Fiction. Like I, get why so many people say that and i think that for most people 
um, when you're trying to explain like this, if you like Pulp Fiction, I think that you would like Low Life. Like when you're trying to sell it to someone who maybe isn't entirely on board with it, but you know that they like Tarantino films. Like I get the comparisons, but I also think that they're inaccurate. You know, like I feel, yeah, I feel like I that agree. comparison makes Low Life sound derivative of Tarantino. Because so many people have tried to be Tarantino and they've tried to make films like the films that he's made and they end up feeling derivative. They end up feeling like someone who is trying to make a Tarantino movie. With Low Life, I do not feel like Ryan Prowse is trying to make a Tarantino film. I feel like Ryan Prowse made a Ryan Prowse film. I completely agree, yeah. Because with Tarantino, like his stuff is very much based on like homage and um, like really just paying respect to past work i get like past cinematic like films and genres and stuff that tarantino loves like even even tarantino like tarantino stuff is deliberately derivative in a way that feels fresh and original right this movie it takes a similar structure to pulp fiction which again pulp fiction did not originate it's just kind yeah, of it's like just the a popular non, yeah it's just non-linear non-linear narrative yeah. and it's got i mean it's like a dark comedy that's about criminals and i mean i i definitely see it and i feel like pretty much anybody who watches this movie even if you weren't prompted to say like oh it's kind of like pulp fiction i feel like if you're aware of pulp fiction which i mean you probably are sure uh you would probably like kind of think that on your own anyway um but it still feels completely different like he's not um, like it doesn't have the same kind of dialogue, I guess, and it's not highly stylized. He doesn't throw in like, or in Prowl's movie, he doesn't like throw in all the pop culture references or the music or anything. Like it still feels very different. Although yeah. they do have their own um, like version of the Big Kahuna Burger. Kind of, they have like the, <laughs> well, the yeah, restaurant. That's like the, there, there's but. some things up. About it, where like I get why people draw those similarities. It's a perfect way to sell the movie, I think, because yeah. if you like Pulp Fiction, I guarantee you that you'd probably really enjoy Low Life. Like similar in content, but not similar in style. I guess is really the best way I can boil it down. Yeah, and and again, like it's really weird because I do understand why people say that. I just I don't feel like it's the most accurate way to describe it, and. And again, un- unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to actually meet Ryan at the film fest, but he seems so awesome that I feel like describing his movie as just like, oh, it's the spiritual successor to Pulp Fiction. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. but it's also its own thing, you know? So like, like I get it, but don't don't like pigeonhole him into just, well, this is all that he does. Like, I, I think that he has so much more... Uh, I, I can't wait to see the next thing that oh, he does. No, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what comes next from You know the movie that I do think feels like a Tarantino film? Let the Corpses Tan. Let the Corpses Tan really, really feels like a Tarantino film, way more than Low Life does. I, that, that is going to... Um, I have a thing that I'm going to say about it that we'll get to in, in a minute that like I was, I was actually watching it right before we started recording. Um, and something hit me like, yeah... This, I think, is probably a pretty perfect way to describe Let the Corpses Tan. Um, but yeah, I, I think that let's let's talk about that one next because that just seems like a logical progression. So, Let the Corpses Tan. What, what do you think about that one? Um, Let the Corpses Tan is really, really fun. Like, okay, 
I think that Let the Corpses Tan is a movie that is in love with the language of cinema. Yes. It doesn't really necessarily care too much about making sense or plot or even really character so much. It's more just about movement and like the like just presenting this tale in like the most stylish crazy way possible um it rem- it's kind of like an art house version of the movie free fire that ben wheatley directed a few years ago uh-huh. where it's basically just like one long shootout yeah um yeah i had forgotten um i had forgotten before rewatching it just how much of the movie is them just running around shooting at each other yeah like that's almost the entire movie which it's crazy <laughs> yeah. to me too because like all, most of the stuff that i read about the film beforehand doesn't really mention that's what it is it talks about like people fighting over treasure or something. So I assumed it was going to be more like an adventure, like treasure hunting, pseudo Indiana Jones, but a little bit darker kind of thing or like modern day. Um, But no, like it is just a straight up, like there is a car with some gold in it and a whole bunch of people are double crossing each other and some cops show up and they just shoot at each other. I mean, like that is the whole movie. It's about 10 minutes, maybe not even that, maybe just five minutes. I'll say at most 10. It's about 10 minutes of setting up the plot. And then like you get some um, some uh, flashbacks and you get some other stuff spliced in. But after about the 10 minute mark, it is basically running around shooting at each other. One naked dude running around shooting. Yeah, at people, one naked dude, which is hilarious. It really is. Also, <laughs> I just I, I need to I feel the need to make this disclaimer. If that sounds amazing to you, you may want to hold off on watching it just because this is this is very much this is a very avant-garde kind of film like it is not <clears throat> it is not an action movie even though it is full of action it's like a french new wave spaghetti western yes the quentin tarantino wes anderson love flick yeah no it, I, i'm glad you mentioned the spaghetti western thing because it totally feels like a leone movie the way yeah. that they shoot it like that's a very deliberate thing i think um so, you know, if you like spaghetti westerns, then you will probably get a kick out of this movie. But again, you just, you have to kind of let go of like, okay, I don't understand anything that's happening in this movie. You won't understand anything that's happening in this movie. You just kind of have to let it grab hold of you and like, just go along for the ride. Yeah. Like, don't think too deeply on much. Just like sit there and enjoy what is being presented to you. I think like it is just such. Just such, let it wash over you. Exactly. Like it is just such a wild ride. I do think that there's. <laughs> There's some stuff going on under the surface that's pretty interesting. Like, I feel like the movie is actually about, like, making movies. Like, there's the way that they use this. So, there's the one thing we haven't mentioned yet is all of the weird, um, I don't even know how to describe There, There are scenes that happen, like, throughout the film where it cuts to, like, this woman who's always backlit. So, you never really see her face. You do get to see her, her breasts a lot, which is interesting. Like, the camera makes sure to light those bad boys up every now and then, which uh-huh. is kind of funny. But they are super bizarre. And they're full of, like, some very interesting religious iconography. Like, there's a part where the woman is, like, on a cross, but it's twisted to the side as an X. And, um, like, I don't know, it's very, it feels very much like, like they're just these people who are worshiping her and they're like throwing gold on her body and rubbing it all over her body. And they're doing like, at one point there's like water running down her body and people are drinking the water or I guess it's supposed to be sweat or something. And people are like drinking her. It's super weird. Um, and I think this is maybe kind of a spoiler, but it's also like, this isn't a movie that you can really be spoiled for you. I I don't think. it depends on what you say. There are definitely things about it that can be spoiled. The th- I think the thing is, like, when you watch the movie, I have my own interpretation of what 
I think is going on in the film. Sure. And I think that if I give my interpretation, it might be difficult for people to look past that. Um, so I guess I'll just kind of, I don't want to get too much into it. I don't want to spoil it for anybody or make people look at it differently. And I want people to interpret it their own way. Um, I do feel like the film is deliberately trying to talk about how directors are the gods of their film and that like every little thing that they, it's basically just about how directors are manipulating people to create art. I think in a way, like there's some interesting tidbits or like interesting scenes in there that show like, I I could see that. Well, you know, like even just as simple as they're running around shooting everything in the same way that like, you know, you shoot scenes. Yeah. Well, it feels like, it feels like, I don't know if I agree with it, but I can see it. It feels like the movie is kind of talking about like, there does seem to be some sort of supernatural force that's sort of manipulating the characters in a way. Um, And there's some interesting ideas where like, so they'll do like some aerial shots over the compound that these people are in. Um, only it's not like at first you think that it's like showing you like really high up in the air, almost like a Google maps view of what's going on. But really it's just a piece of paper with like ants running around to show you like where people are at. Um, and it's pretty interesting. And then they kind of like cut that in with some of the scenes with this golden woman to make you think that there's some, some kind of manipulation going on. I don't know. It's, it's definitely something that's very much up for interpretation. There See, I just, the way that I watched it was just a fun French action flick with a lot of very stylized camera movements. Yes. I mean, and you can definitely watch it that way too. And it's perfectly enjoyable on those merits, but like there's so many little like, especially with the editing, the way that it's edited makes you feel like they're, like they're just constantly throwing in just like bizarre imagery in spaces. Like there's some parts where like when people are being shot, it'll like cut to meat. Yeah. Or like there's a part where like these two people are making love and like he, it, it instead of like showing the person's hands going down the woman's back, he's like digging into this like pig carcass. Well, it's because like she had pushed him up against a pig carcass. So like that was actually happening right there. Well, I thought about I that, think. but the pig, but the carcass shows up in other places too throughout the film. It's, it's super bizarre. Yeah. So, um, like mentioning some of the camera movements, it has a lot of like those really, uh, not necessarily extreme close-ups, but a lot of close-ups on like just the mouth or just the yeah, hands. Well, no, I would so, say extreme close-ups. <clears throat> like they're super, like they get way, way up in people's faces with the camera. They get very way up much in like other a, places too. Yes, that's true. Very the, much like a spaghetti western. Well, and also, I mean, I mentioned this uh, a little bit ago. It also feels a lot like a Tarantino movie or like a Wes Anderson movie. It mm-hmm. feels a lot more violent than Wes Anderson, or at least a lot more serious. <clears throat> excuse me but it has a lot of those same stylings it has a lot of the same feel you know yeah. i i wouldn't in a way i wouldn't compare it to wes anderson but i would also say if you're a fan of wes anderson and you really like violent movies you're probably really going to dig this one i would probably um, i would maybe say <laughs> more edgar wright than wes anderson especially with the way that they do some of the organic transitions like there's this one scene that felt I, th- so there's, there's some Edgar Wrightness in it as well there, there's the scene where like you see the two people talking to each other and the camera's just kind of sliding back and forth on like a single plane uh, kind of like a Wes Anderson movie That's, yeah. that kind of feels Wes Anderson to E but like the camera will go behind someone's back and when it does and slides over to the next person their face is getting closer to the camera and every time it goes back and forth it makes the people look like they're getting closer and closer to each other that had some of that kind of Edgar Wright flavor to me. And eventually like in one shot, like their faces are literally about to touch each other. Yeah. Even though they're not really that close to each other, it's just kind of getting, giving you an idea of like, 
the tension in the scene. It's yeah, really I, clever. I, mean, I love the energy of this film. Like we've already said a few times, people are just running around shooting at each other. They are literally running around. So yes. it's not like some movies where, you know, like they're hiding and like they're trying to be all sneaky and like they're trying to um, uh, very secretively get from one place to the next. No, they're just like running. Like it feels again, very Wes Anderson or Pulp Fiction-y in just like, oh, there's a naked dude running across the ceiling again or running across a roof again. I just, I, I love the energy so much. It's not a comedy, but there's things there's about some it. funny scenes in the movie. Yeah, like there's things about it that are just so like true life comedic, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's hard not to laugh at some of them. But I don't think that comedy is the intention. Yeah. Well, and the one thing too that I have to, I have to highlight, the sound design in this movie is insane. Like you hear every single it's like they take all the sound and magnify it like everything is so loud especially the people who are wearing like leather jackets every single time they move you just hear like that leather squeak like so loud yeah again edgar wright wes anderson quentin tarantino like it this feels like the kind of movie that if it had been made 30 years ago would be one of the movies that each of them would point to as this is part of what shaped my cinematic uh, experiences. Oh, yeah, definitely. It seems like um, they're probably, and I, I don't have the director's names pulled up. It's co-directed by, um, let's see here, Helene Catet and uh, Bruno Forzani. Um, and it feels like they definitely have a lot of the same influences as as those directors. Like they're pulling from a lot of the same, um, same sources, I guess you'd say. Um, but yeah, like it's it's one of those movies that like it's it's really trying to mesh the sex and violence together in an interesting way. It feels I mentioned this for a prayer before dawn, but this movie especially feels very much like people who just have a fetish for filmmaking. Oh, every yeah. aspect of every technical aspect of filmmaking, the characters, the plot, all that stuff doesn't matter. They're just trying to figure out like what kind of crazy shit can we do with a camera and with editing and sound design yeah and just like to make you feel but there also is a plot like that's one of the things that i do appreciate about it is you know there have been other movies that that i've seen some of them at cff that feel much more like a this is an extremely technical technically proficient director Mm. and it is a beautiful experience that has absolutely nothing to do with the story that's trying to be told Mm. you know like there are some movies that it does feel more like looking at a piece of art at least with Let the Corpses Stand, like there is a plot and there mm-hmm. is a reason why each of the people are doing the things that they're doing. So it doesn't feel just like completely spastic and all over the place. Yeah. At times it does. And at times it feels a little frenetic. But again, each thing like it, it stands to reason why each person is doing the things that they're doing. And it can be a little hard to follow because it is subtitled um, and like things move quick. So like if you miss part of what they're saying, you're like, wait, who's the what? Oh, yeah. Really well, and the thing, yeah, like you said, with things moving quick, they don't really give you much of an introduction to the characters at all. Yeah. Like they just kind of throw you right into it and expect you to keep track of who's who. Yeah. Um, and so like I feel like on a rewatch, it'd probably be like I've been saying that the characters aren't very well developed or anything that doesn't seem like they care about it. I feel like there's probably more to it than you can even like then is even possible to pick up on on a first watch like i feel like on a rewatch you can probably catch a lot of those kind of character quirks and know more about them and realize who they're referring to but yeah there were parts where they were talking like like oh yeah i just double crossed these people and uh or you know they'll refer to certain people by name and i'm like i have no idea who that person is but honestly it doesn't really matter i don't feel like you have to like there's a plot but also the plot is mostly just hey we need to shoot somebody 
and get this gold. I yeah. mean, that's pretty much all that it is. And you don't necessarily need to know much else about who they're talking about or anything. Like you can just kind of go with the flow. Yeah. And again, and like about it. 10 minutes into the movie, the rest of the movie is just running around shooting at each other. Um, yeah, like, even on a rewatch, I don't know if they're supposed to be an established protagonist. Like, I genuinely don't know who I should be rooting for. Um, like, there are some people, like, the cops you kind of inherently root for because it's like, all right, they're there trying to stop these criminals. Mm. Um, the the woman and kid you root for because it's a woman and child. Yeah, they kind of just got picked up and got in- yeah. inadvertently involved in this situation then, then there's the one guy with a leather jacket that just kind of seems you know cool so but like i i genuinely don't know which person i'm supposed to point towards and mm-hmm. say this is the one that you care about and want to make it to the end it's more of sit back experience it again let it wash over you yeah. and then it, it just it is it is a really really fun ride um and it just runs the gamut of cinematic trickery like they're using filters throughout certain scenes and miniatures and some pretty interesting um like blood effects and stuff i don't know it's just it's it's a wild ride it's 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 fun on just like just like on a on an action movie level but then there's also some of that art house stuff that really elevates it I think. yeah well and something that i think that really adds to the energy and also sometimes to the humor how they use the clock to let you know what time it is because oh, yeah, you know like I... there's like that uh like it, it'll put the time on the screen but not really like not with a jump scare sort of noise but with just a very um I, i'm trying to think of how to describe it like it's, it's almost a, like the this isn't the best example, but it's sort of like the Law and Order dun dun. A little bit like that, yeah. But it again, doesn't with sound that, like it, but it kind of has the same effect, I think. Yeah, and so like it'll just show the time on the screen, and the time does jump back and forth a little bit, and so like they'll show something happening, and that scene plays out, and then the time will pop up on the screen, and it'll be a little bit before mm-hmm. or like after the last time that they showed, but before the present time, and so like it's, you're seeing the same thing from different angles. And there's one part that I love where the guy says, all right, it's, uh, they're using military time. So it's like 1755. And he says it's, and looks down at his watch and it pops up on the screen, 1755. And then it comes back to him, 1755. It's just, (laughs) it's one of those things where it's like, okay, since they have consistently been using this to let the audience know what time it is, when there's a character referencing the time, they did that again. And it's just really smart and funny. And I it love is. it. It's just, it's great. I'm, I'm so glad I com- almost completely forgot about that because, and it's, it's not like one of those movies where you just get like a, some of the inner titles, like every like quarter of the film or something. It's not like chapters. It's like the time pops up all throughout the film like constantly i would say it pops up over 30 or 40 times at at least well there are sometimes that there will be like a 30 second scene and then the time will pop up again because you're seeing the same scene from a different perspective yeah and it's it's funny too because it's 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 really a non-linear narrative but it still kind of plays out linearly it's and it's funny too because i don't think that the time is always exactly accurate like there will be a part where it's like it'll say you know 1750 and you see a scene and it'll say 1755 and you'll still like see part of like the end of the other scene even though it didn't last that long i don't know it feels like the time or maybe it did last that long but you didn't realize how long things were taking because that's true they could have like an it could be an elliptical use of time where you know you assume that more time has taken place than what you actually see yeah although it kind of just felt to me like they're like, you know, we know you're not going to actually pay like exact attention to the time. Although as the film went on, I tried to like really hone in like, okay, this is 
1750. So I just need to remember that so I know if they're cutting back or forward. But at first, like, I usually don't pay attention to that kind of stuff in movies because usually it's just superfluous information. Yeah. In this one, like, you learn to pay attention to it so you can really keep track of when things are happening. Well, and, like, pretty... I want to see a cut of the film that's, uh, that's played out linearly. Like, I want to see... Because there are some things that I question whether or not they took place before or after one of the mm. other scenes. And I want to see it like actually played out as if there were no jump cuts and it was just this is beginning to end. Like I, I'm very curious as to what that film would look like. Probably not that much different, but different enough. I yeah, think. it's it's one of those things where like it's it seems like a detail that you wouldn't really necessarily need to follow the movie. Like that they just kind of keep throwing it in there. But um but it is interesting that they that they do that. And I still don't necessarily feel like they <clears throat> try like really hard to make it match up exactly. It's just like, oh, this is supposed to take place after this event sometimes, so let's just advance time by ten minutes or yeah. whatever. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, or to just let the audience know this thing that you just saw took ten minutes to actually take place from beginning yeah. to end. So Or they're just screwing with everyone and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the director's like, what time is it? Hell, I don't know, man. Just put put a number up there. No one's yeah, going to pay attention. Who cares? <laughs> Start adding in just letters and symbols. Nobody's going to notice. Um, yeah, Love the Corpses Tan was, it was a lot of fun. And um, I've, I've mentioned the preview on a few of the movies. Love the Corpses Tan is one that the the preview does give you a good sense of the energy of the film. Like I even remember thinking the first time that I saw the trailer, it's like, this feels like a Wes Anderson directed French spaghetti Western question mark. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it kind of is. So I, I don't think that it gives away too much. Cause you know, some trailers like it's, Hey, here's the end of the movie. Yeah. This, this one, the trailer from this, from what I remember, cause I didn't rewatch it before, uh, before we started recording this episode it gives you enough to give you a sense of the energy, but not enough to actually remember what the crap happened or who any of the characters were. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, so here's like, a ton of stuff. And then you're like, okay, cool. I I, I want that. I want to go do that. Perfect primer for the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. Absolutely love it. Uh, all right. Anything else about Let the Corpses Hand? Um, it's on Amazon Prime currently as of this recording. So you should check it out. You absolutely should. All right. Next up is Ghost Stories. Which is such a huge, huge stylistic shift. It, yeah, it's not really like that movie at all. Anyway, no. there's no way to even segue between those two movies. And we need to be careful not to give spoilers for this movie. It's gonna be. It's tough. It. I, I think we can. Do, I mean, it I think it is, and it isn't. So yeah, this movie is an anthology film that really doesn't feel like an anthology film. Like the one thing I, the thing I think I appreciate the most about this movie is that the wraparound story is the story of the movie yeah. like it's still like you could get away with saying that this isn't an anthology film i think because the wraparound story is so connected with what's happening and i feel like in most anthologies they're just like oh how are we going to present all these like completely disparate events and styles and everything and they're like i don't know just throw something around like with v something like vhs it's like yeah. oh people are breaking into a house and they just find some vhs tapes and watch them yeah like that works but i like the way that ghost stories organically fits it into this main story yeah it's about a guy whose job it is to basically like debunk the supernatural mm -hmm. and so he's hired he's hired by another guy who does like basically the exact same yeah. thing but yeah like he's he's like the best that ever was but then he just sort of disappeared 
and he disappeared because these three stories, there were just three of them, right? There's just three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because there were these three stories that changed this guy's mind and he started believing, but like he, he refused to accept the fact that he believed. And so he hired this other guy to be like, look, I believe because of these stories, I need you to complete what I couldn't and like debunk them for me. Like you, you have to find a way to, to prove to me that my entire life's work was real and mm. that I wasn't wasting time on, uh, I wasn't wasting time when the supernatural really did exist. Right. So like it gives you a reason to care about why the main character is tracking down these other people and tracking down these stories. So like you said, like it gives you uh, a, a cohesive wraparound, mm. but the stories themselves, because even though there is the cohesive wraparound, it's those um, those three smaller vignettes. Yeah, man, I some of them got me. No, they really they they're very very effective. <clears throat> uh, I will say, first of all, this is the only anthology movie I've ever seen where the wraparound is my favorite part because of where it Wrong. leads to. The wraparound is my favorite. I love love what they do with that. Especially, the, I did not see anything like where it leads to in the end. I did not see coming, and I think it is so brilliant the way that they, the way that they put that together. Um, yeah. But they, we're not talking about that right now. So, no. <laughs> my favorite story. This is kind of tough. I I will say this though. We're not going to talk about it, and so here is enough of a chance to say something about it, and then move on so that we're not giving spoilers. There are enough. There is enough shown along the way that upon a rewatch, you can be like, oh. Oh, no. They give you okay, so many yeah. clues throughout the movie. There are so many clues. Like, there's yeah. tons and tons of clues that you could. E- that, I mean, I don't know if you could easily piece it together, but. I Some mean, of the clues are not subtle. Some they're of not. them are. Well, they're not. Some like, of them are. Especially, <laughs> so blatantly in, obvious. especially in retrospect, it's like, of course. Like, yeah. of course. But I still did not see it coming at all. So I think it was. It's a pretty masterful. The way that they tie everything together in the end is masterfully done. I think. Yeah. Um. So I'll start with the first story, which I think might actually be my favorite, which is really surprising to me. I love Paul Whitehouse's character. Like his his acting is just incredible, and his story, like he comes across as across as like a complete asshole in the beginning of the movie, and you don't like him, and you slowly end up like he's one of the more sympathetic characters. I think. Um, and I think that his story is actually the scariest. Like I jumped at least two or three times during his scene and it's such a simple, it's a, it's a simple little ghost story yeah. about a guy, a night watchman who is encountering ghosts. I mean, yeah. that's literally all there is to <laughs> in an abandoned building. There's, there's really not much else to it, but it is just one of those, like the way that they play around with like the radio and they give you little glimpses of, they kind of do the hereditary thing where he goes into dark rooms and you can see things in the corner and they're not acknowledged. And I don't know, like just the way it's edited, it is just so perfectly paced and terrifying. And it's probably the simplest story, but I think it is the most effective. I think that it is definitely the most startling. Like, Oh yeah. It it has been a while since I've been in a movie theater where people screamed during a horror movie Mm -hmm. during that first, uh, during that first segment. Like there were people actually screaming during some. Oh, of the stuff. I jumped so hard. Yeah. two times in the first segment. It's it's really good. Did, did that movie get you hard too? It got me so hard. <laughs> Just really <laughs> harder than most any other movie that I could like that I can think of. Oh my. Um, the <clears throat> second one I think is is the most mysterious. I guess in a way, um, the way that they. 
especially the setup before they even get into the story when he goes um, to Alex. The, I can't think of the character's name, but he's played by Alex Lothar, who is on. Um, he had a good episode of uh, Black Mirror, and he's in that show, uh, The End of the Fucking World, which sure. I watched a little bit of. I haven't finished it, but anyway, um, he his performance is really good like the acting across the board in this movie is fantastic it's like it is super strong from everybody but man he's his character is so twitchy and just like strange that like you can't help but like i need to know what happened to this guy yeah um and he's a kid and there's like some weird things going on in his house when uh the interviewer guy that uh andy dyer andy nyman i don't know why i think Dyer, andy nyman plays um like they're just super it's just super creepy right from the beginning before he even gets into the story I think the actual segment is probably my least favorite just because just when it's starting to get good, it kind of abruptly ends, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's also the one that like, I feel like if I were in the situation, it would probably be the scariest, like thinking about, well, okay, no, nope. no, actually I take nope. that back. Nope. nope. <laughs> I take that back. Um, because the third it's segment. definitely the third one, yeah. but the second one, like I love the setup and um there's some pretty good you don't get like a good full view of what's happening of of the thing that is antagonizing him but like the effects are really fantastic and i love the way that they shoot it in shadow and it it's creepier to think about what it is rather than seeing it full on well and there is an incredible use of darkness in this movie so not just like light and shadow but like just dark like there are things that happen in the dark that you don't know, mm-hmm. but like it, it is used in such a, it's used in such a way where not seeing anything at all is actually adding to that suspense and that terror. And again, it's just such an incredible use of darkness. Mm-hmm. And because of the wraparound story, that makes it so much of a smarter decision. Yeah. You know, like th- this is definitely one of those movies where it's not perfect. I love it. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. But it does benefit from a second watch or, you know, multiple rewatches mm-hmm. because each time you can think about, all right, all the information that I know now going into it, what else can I pick up on? And what other thing that is seemingly completely innocuous is actually like a, a pretty important part of yeah. the overall story. Mm-hmm. And totally the darkness is uh, it's definitely one of them. Yeah. And then we have the the third segment with Martin Freeman, who is God, Martin Freeman is like I'm I'm tempted to say that he is potentially one of the greatest actors on the planet. I feel like he can just he makes everything so great. Like yeah. it doesn't matter if he's being an asshole or a nice guy or like a disturbed person or like the most intelligent person in the room. Like he can do anything. He's so good. Um, and his story is one that would have fit perfectly in my fear week, mm-hmm. um, for 60 days of Halloween where, you know, he's in this huge house by himself. His wife is about to have a baby and things keep happening in the baby's I room. I thought that she already had the baby, but the wife was like dead or gone. Well, or... it starts off where she's I, about to have a baby. I don't, re- I, I didn't rewatch this one before we recorded. So okay, that's why gotcha. I'm a little fuzzy on some of the it starts details. off. It starts off where she, like, she's just pregnant basically and he he had to go home for for work or whatever while she's in the hospital and then kind of goes from there um it's it's one where i i wish that it had gone on a little bit longer i think like i feel like it's kind of an abrupt ending i don't know if i could have taken much more of it especially now yeah no (laughs) just that's just thinking about it it, there's some pretty creepy stuff going on in um in the baby's room and where it ultimately leads in the wraparound is man, like super unexpected, super heart wrenching. 
it is definitely the most emotional of the films, especially if you're a parent. Yeah. Um, there's also this really fantastic like long shot where he's walking through the house that I think is really well done. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's really like, it's hard to even talk more about it without. So, so I, I do want to say this about away. the third segment. Um, Cause you know, my kid is still a tiny little baby and he's not sleeping all the way through the night yet. So I'm frequently up in the middle of the night. Yes. And in the middle of the night, you know how houses just kind of creak. Noises. Yeah. yeah, they just make noises. The air conditioner, the ice maker, just, you know, things settling, squirrels running across the ceiling, just all those little noises that you never really even notice during the day, mm-hmm. but at night are just so amplified. Yeah. And when you're a little exhausted and, you know, thinking about your little baby and you hear a noise, you're like, what the hell was that? Yeah. And yeah, there, there have been a few times where I've been rocking him and like just out of the corner of my eye, I would think that I saw something. And one of the first things that comes to mind is the, uh, the sequence in, oh, really? um, <laughs> that's, in, in that's ghost funny. stories and it's kind of terrifying. And I'm like, nope, nope. Horror movies are fun. It's fine. It's just a house. Houses do things. It's totally fine. Yep. I'm good. All right. <laughs> please go to sleep. Cause I need to sleep right now. <laughs> It's a perfect little bump in the night story, I think. Yes. Um, and, and that's what I love. One of the many things that I love so much about ghost stories is, like you said about the first one, they are all such simple ghost stories. Like, they're the kind of ghost stories that you would get sitting around the fire hearing just an old dude telling a scary, scary ghost story tale. Like, they're so simple, but mm-hmm. just so incredibly well done that, like, there's a reason that simple ghost stories endure is because there's something just inherently terrifying about them, and that's what you get with ghost stories. Definitely. And then just briefly, the last 20 minutes of the movie. No spoilers. No, no spoilers, spoilers. But damn, they hit me really hard, and they play with reality in, like, a fascinating Twilight Zone kind of way that is just, I, I, I love it. Like... It's one of those where I question whether it will be quite as where I I wonder if it'd be quite as impactful on a second viewing like I wonder if if all of the logic holds up. I think that I think that it would because again rather than trying to figure out the mystery you're trying to look for all of the you, you know the end and so now you're trying to look for the clues to let you yeah. know you know how did they get there well and i that's the thing though i think with a lot of mysteries a lot of time once the mystery is revealed if you go back and rewatch it it's like oh I, I don't really care anymore like it's like with gone girl i read the book before i watched the movie and when i watched the movie like everybody was like madly in love with it and i watched it and i'm like yeah i mean it's like a really good adaptation but like it doesn't change anything from the book so i literally knew exactly what was going to happen every time so i didn't have quite that same like shock factor that everybody else had with it um, and I'm, I hope that ghost stories isn't that kind of case. I don't think it would be. I, um, I think it would still be a fun watch, but like I, it might yeah. not be quite as suspenseful, but I think it would still be fun. Yeah, I agree. I think that's kind of where I'm leaning with it. Um, but again, like, especially on a first time watch, I was just pretty floored by, by where it ended up. And I, I loved it. So I didn't know this, but apparently it's based off of a, a it's stage a, production. Yeah, it's a play. And uh, I, I heard some people talking about it after the movie. Um, there, were, there were some people talking about it afterwards, and one of them had actually seen the stage production. And so he was saying oh, cool. how there are things that happen at the very beginning of the stage play that appear as if they're just, you know, like an accident, like he drops his pencil or mm-hmm. something. But that directly, it, it very much was intentional, and it plays into things later on. Yeah. 
I can't talk about how it plays into <laughs> things without spoilers. But um, but yeah, apparently the stage play does it like even more masterfully. Which well, and I never ever would have would have in a million years thought that this is a stage like based on a stage on a play because you know most of the times when you translate a play to television or or movies like you can usually there's a staginess to it like you can tell it's a lot of dialogue there's not a lot of location changes anything like that like this movie really truly adapts the play to film and yeah. leverages film the medium of film in a way that makes sense for this story where and like again you would never know that it was based on a play yeah so i would love to see the play, i would though. absolutely love to do to see that and um the, the guy who plays goodman the like main paranormal investigator guy he uh co-wrote and co-directed the film with jeremy dyson um and yeah they did a fantastic job I, I really hope that there are like more versions of the play that go on like come around somewhere here where we could see it that'd be fantastic maybe we can get people to bring it to our local theater because yeah, that'll happen i would totally volunteer and, for that job <laughs> you know what they did little shop of horrors That's so true. that is true yeah they did I, I i think we might be able to hopefully convince people i don't know probably not be cool all right so sticking with anthologies let's talk a little bit about all the creatures were stirring uh yeah all the creatures were stirring which was directed by david ian mckendry and rebecca dr rebecca mckendry I'm, i feel like people who have their doctorate i need to like give them give them their I, I think so much that is because you work credit. in academia though That's so it's true, like yeah. you know, people who work through and get a doctorate like they need that credit um yeah so all the creatures were stirring is um an anthology movie that is uh christmas horror so right in our wheelhouse um and although i will say this i know plenty of people that if they hear the words christmas horror anthology they are instantly turned off because they hate anthologies and they hate Christmas horror movies. <laughs> so the thought of a Christmas horror anthology, I unfortunately I know people that they're like, that sounds like the worst. Yeah. I mean, I am not one of those people. I to me, do, it's like, that sounds like fun. I honestly like when it comes to anthologies, I'm usually kind of hesitant on them because you know, I mean, naturally with an anthology, you're going to have some highs and lows and like that's how I felt even before watching ghost stories, which I think maybe is probably why I'm so high on it was because like, I wasn't expecting it to work as well as it did. And I feel like the quality between all of the ta- all four of the stories like remains pretty consistent. Like, I don't think there are really too many, there are any like really low lows where it's like, Oh, I could have done without that story. Like they all right. work beautifully. Um, with all the creatures we're stirring. I do think that there is quality wise. Like there are, it does kind of suffer from that, like lows and highs. There are some stories that are not quite as strong as others, but then there are some stories that I think are incredibly strong. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's one too, where it doesn't like, you're not, it's not roller coaster Like I think that it like consistently increases in quality as it goes on for the most part. Um, so let's, okay. So we'll start with the wraparound. Okay, all right. Here, here's my only problem with you saying that it only increases as it goes on. It, the first segment aside from the wraparound story is the office Christmas party, which has Matt Mercer uh-huh. and um, uh, Jesse Merlin. I think mm-hmm. that he's in that one. Pretty sure he is. Pretty sure he is. I could be mis- misremembering. Ah, this is what happens when I don't have time to rewatch things. <laughs> it does have a uh, Chase Williamson in it. The first. Okay, the first yeah, one. Chase Williamson. Um, so it has Chase Williamson Briefly. and Matt Mercer, and crazy, crazy, crazy things happen, and it, the plot-wise, it might not be the strongest. But I mean, come on. 
don't tell me that that one was not so much fun to watch. Oh, it's fun, definitely. I think that I mean, with this anthology, it's really short, and there are five, um, five stories in it, so they feel more like sketches than like short stories. I feel like almost like this sounds this sounds dismissive. I don't mean it this way. They feel like Saturday Night Saturday Night Live sketches, um, not necessarily because they're trying to be funny or anything, but just kind of in quality, um, and. I think that's just because they're shorter, so there's not as much room for character work. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the characters are just, they feel like they're sketched, but it works for the stories that they're trying to tell. Right. Well, especially because, and we're probably not going to have time to go through like each of the segments, but here's why I think that it actually works for for some of the segments to maybe not be quite as strong and to feel like they're a little bit sketchier. The wraparound story is they went to like an improv-ish theater yeah. where like they are sketches on a stage. Yeah. So like it kind of makes sense that you are just getting some of these little vignettes. Right. And again, like how it fits within that larger narrative. Also, I love what they do when they cut back to the wraparound story and you see like the end of that sketch on the stage. Yeah. So like the one where it's like the guy... um like holding just reindeer antlers and like (laughs) just holding streamers of red to make it look like blood. So like some of the things that the streamers are one of my favorites. I love that. I, I love how they tie it back in to that wraparound story. And, and again, they're watching stage productions. Mm. So like, I think that you have to keep that in mind when you're watching it is it's not like, all right, here are six like fully fleshed out stories. It's more of no, here are six stories, five stories, however many, that are taking place in a stage production. So, well, and I actually love like I love I the low it. budget feel of the movie. Like it feels like <clears throat> you know, Rebecca and David just got a bunch of their friends together and were like, "Hey, you want to shoot a movie over the weekend?" Yeah. Like so, I mean, it doesn't feel like super polished or anything like that, but like you get the there's a palpable sense of fun of like, "Hey, let's just get some friends together and hang out and like make movies." Like and I love that. Like, I love the DIY feel of the film. Yeah. Um, I Let's see. So, highlights. Office Christmas Party is pretty fun. Um, I, I don't know the actual names of the segments. They're all yeah, like, I don't remember. They're all, like, based on the on Christmas stuff. I will say the Christmas angle, like, in most of them, it feels more just, like, window dressing. Like, just lights on the house, kind of. Because it's mostly, like, oh, this takes place at Christmas. The yeah. first one is about, like, the office Christmas party where, you know, you're exchanging gifts. Which could have um, taken place at any office party. It could have been any office party. I think with the Christmas gifts, like it works. It makes sense. Um, the second one is the one where the guy gets locked out of his car. He's He was Christmas shopping. Okay. And that I think is, for me, that was the strongest segment. The Christmas Eve one with the van. Mm. And maybe it's not necessarily like the strongest to me it is because i wanted a full feature length film yes if based off of that i completely agree if i were to pick any one of the segments to be turned into a feature length movie that's the one i would pick because it sets up a very fascinating there's some really fascinating world building and like i want to see what happens next in that story yeah um, I, that one's in pretty much impossible to talk about without giving anything away. Yeah, it, um, it is probably my favorite. As I, much as I love Matt, that is probably my favorite segment in the entire uh, All the Creatures. I do like that. I think it's my second favorite. Um, and then the next one is was the next one Rudolph? I, or Prancer? <sighs> or there's one more. I think there's one between those two. I can't remember what it is though. There's there's the office Christmas party. There's the one that takes place in the parking lot on Christmas Eve. There's Rudolph. There's the um, 
Christmas Carol esque one. That's, I think that's the next one. Is the Christmas Carol one the um or another the, like Christ- dinner party, the like Twilight Zone esque dinner party? Was that it? I feel like there was another one. I mean, I know there's the wraparound story, but I feel like there was. I know that's what I'm thinking. I feel like there's a man. I feel really bad about this too because like it's um. Hold on a second. We might need to cut this part out. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see we'll just, here. We'll just keep talking it. through it. There's, so yeah, there was the Christmas party, and I know that I'm just repeating the exact same thing that we Christmas just said. Party. There, maybe it was just party those Christmas Carol. Okay, yeah, no, that's right, that's right, yeah, that's right. There are five segments. Okay, okay, we're good, we're good. Back yeah. on track. Okay, I, I, I feel like there was a sixth segment. The next one was either the the reindeer one or the Christmas Carol one. I can't remember. I think it's the Christmas Carol one. Um, that one is pretty fun. Um, that's the one that actually like there were a couple times where I jumped on that one. <laughs> I don't feel like any of the sketches are really scary, um, but there are there was a good jump scare in that one, um, and it's just I mean it's a fun. I feel like you, it's almost like an, the obligatory Christmas Carol riff. Right. That's the one that had the most Christmas spirit to it. Like it felt like this is a story you could only tell at Christmas, um, and like it's just it's fun the way that they play around with that, the way they do the. The ghosts, they don't quite cut it into past, present, and future. Like, or they don't clearly delineate it. I think they do kind of cut it up that way, but... No, they they do, but it's just, um, again, because it's a very short segment. Yeah, they kind of blend them all together. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really fun, and I think it has, like, a pretty funny punchline toward the end of it. Um, I do like that one. And then the one that I think is probably the most fun and just, like, how kind of gonzo they go with it is the reindeer slasher. Oh my god! It's I think it's the shortest one, um, but man, it is so much fun. They go with like some predator vision with the uh, the reindeer kind of stalking the guy. It's just silly, but that one might be my favorite. Cut back to the quote real world wraparound story, like when they go back oh, to that yeah. stage. That yeah. might be my favorite. That is really good. Um, it's just it's a fun little play on some slasher movies with a reindeer that sounds totally <laughs> ridiculous, and it is. Um, and then the last one, this is my favorite. So this is the Twilight Zone-esque, like, hmm, I don't know if I should say exactly what's happening. Anyway, no, okay, I'm not going to say exactly what's going on, but they do some really fun things where they kind of turn, they play with the format a lot by making it black and white, and they kind of like pull in the aspect ratio to make it more square-like, and it's just a very off-kilter Twilight Zone-esque story. That it, this, it, this one that has Constance Wu in it, which I, I think she's probably the most, maybe the most famous person, just because she's in Crazy Rich Asians, and she's she's a great actress. Um, but I love this one. The way that they play it for comedy, and there also is, there's one super terrifying part in that, um, in that segment that like is just legitimate. Like I almost had to look away because I was like, I was really disturbed by the image on screen at one point. <laughs> right. um, that one is my favorite. Like I, that one really has just this palpable sense of fun and they do some really interesting things with the format and the style. Um, it's hard to the, talk about without giving that anything one away. I feel like could almost be a full feature. It, it could definitely be a much longer short. It could like, be I feel a like it should short, be, yeah. uh, I, I feel like it could be an entire episode of like Twilight Zone or, or Black Mirror or something like that. Yeah, like um, that would be, I think that's the perfect format for this story. I, again, I don't know if a full length feature would work. 
it could. I mean, it could be like an interesting Pleasantville horror, Pleasantville riff, maybe even. I think because of what they do with the characters that introduce the setup of like why some of them are there. I mm. think that that I think that that's where the feature would be is like really delving more into the characters. Yeah. So then when you do get some of the horror elements uh, thrown in, you are invested enough to care about what's happening to them. Yeah, it's good. And then the wraparound ends in a much more satisfying way than I expected. Uh, Cause I was like, I don't really understand how they would tie this in with anything else that's going on. And it was like, it was a pretty fun little, little way. It, but the, I mean, come on, you, kinda, you get to see Graham Skipper have digestive issues. Yeah. So. Graham Skipper <laughs> having digestive issues was quite a bit of fun. Like he, it was a gas. <laughs> it was totally a gas. I'm sorry. You're the worst. <laughs> I know I've said this before, like in jest, but really you're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, dude, you love me. Um, yeah. So like each of these segments, they might not be like the most groundbreaking. Uh, they might not be the most terrifying, but they're fun. And like, that's exactly the thing about them is I, I know that I started um, talking about all the creatures by saying I have some friends who would say that a Christmas horror anthology sounds like the worst. I am not one of those people. To me, a Christmas horror anthology, it just sounds like fun. And mm-hmm. to me, that's what all the creatures was. And I mean, you even mentioned that where it feels like just a whole bunch of friends got together and had fun making a movie. And I feel like that energy comes across. Yeah. And this is... It might not be like the top of my list during Christmas when I want to be scared because I do love Christmas horror, but it is absolutely on the list of just, you know what? It's Christmas time and I want something kind of festive, you know, kind of jolly, but mm, I still want just that little bit of edge with it, you know, throw on all the creatures are stirring it where it, again, it's, it's fun. I don't know how many times I can say the word fun when talking about this movie. I yeah, like it. I, mean, I like it a lot. There you go. Check it out. It's on Shutter. Yeah. It is it is definitely definitely worth watching. It's not Christmas time, so you might have to wait a while to watch it again. I think it, I mean I think you could probably watch it anytime. Again, the Christmas element is mostly just when like I don't think you have to watch it at Christmas to enjoy it. I don't think that you have to watch it at Christmas to enjoy it, but I do think watching at Christmas would add in the enjoyment. It's kind of like if you heard a Christmas song now, You'd be like, oh, I really don't want to listen to Christmas music. But then, like, as it gets closer and closer to Christmas, even though you hate Christmas music because you have no soul, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, when you Thank see you. when you see something dressed in a Santa suit around, like, you know, November 20th, and you're like, oh, yeah, Christmas. That's fine. Yay, Christmas. Yeah, so I feel like watching it around Christmas time would just add to that enjoyment oh, yeah. and really bring you into it more because then even though the Christmas element doesn't play in a ton to the uh, to the specific elements, I think watching it during Christmas would make it feel like a much more festive movie. For sure. If that makes sense. No, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. All right. So, um, so those are all of the movies I watched. <clears throat> Well, there's one more that you watched, but you oh, no, didn't right. watch it leading up to this episode. You watched it back in October, The Ranger. The Ranger, which, man, this it's again, it's this is another one of those movies that's just fun. Like, it is a slasher film that is totally unpretentious. It is just like we're full-on teenage, punk teenagers in the woods, kind of assholes. You want to see kind them? Kind of? Yeah. Okay. Total assholes. You want to see them murdered in grisly <laughs> yep. ways, so we're going to give you exactly what you want. And it is a beautiful movie. Like, just I love the color, the use of color, 
has a horror villain that I think could potentially, if this was a movie made in the eighties, I feel like the Ranger would be a classic horror movie villain. Oh, totally. I think because of how oversaturated the market is now, it's one of those movies that unfortunately is not going to be seen by as many people. Um, and that's a shame because like, again, this feels like it totally fits within that classic slasher pantheon. Um, and here's one of the things that I love about it is it totally feels like an 80s slasher that doesn't feel like a throwback 80s slasher. Yeah. And maybe it's just because they go with punk music and not uh, synth music, but like it has that sort of grungy, like not grunge, like grunge, but like gritty, uh, punk feel to it. You know, where just like their van is, uh, they've got graffiti all over their van and <laughs> the names that they keep coming up with for the band oh, are yeah. just so <laughs> stupid. Like I, there is so much about this movie that hits on so many levels and, and I love it. It's great. We've already talked about it a lot. We have talked about it a lot. So I don't think there's really much <clears> else <throat> to say. Just if you like slasher movies, even a little bit, then check it out. And it's directed by a woman, Jen Wexler, and you don't get very many like women in horror movies as we've talked about a little bit. So please go support this movie and get Jen Wexler more movies and tell like the big wigs at these studios that if you pump movies in or pump money, I can't talk, pump money into (laughs) movies with female talent, then they will be big hits because we need more women in the film industry. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're going to at least mention some of the other movies that I saw in 2018 because they're so awesome that we can't not mention them. But the focus of the ones that like we spent time really talking about the movies, all of them were either foreign or directed by women. And I know all the creatures also directed by David Ian McKendry, so I'm not trying to exclude him. But white dudes get plenty of credit so like we have foreign movies and we have uh rebecca mckendry and jen wexler and i I don't know like there was just something about these movies that gave it a completely different feel from just like going and watching as much as i love steven spielberg it gives you a completely different feel than watching a, a movie festival of just spielberg and um um Eli Roth and just like some of these other maybe really big names in horror, but stuff that you're kind of used to. Yeah. Like even, even some of the things on the movies that we talked about, um, which if anyone forgets everything that we've just been talking about, a prayer before dawn, low life, all low life is not a foreign movie. Ah, Oh, well, no, foreign I mean, slash it's, indie. it's like, uh, it has it, kind of that like Tex-Mex kind of thing going it on felt for like it. A for, well, for and a lot movie. of times a, a lot of the characters speak Spanish too. So it's definitely, I mean, it's an, it's an American film for sure, but, um, but it definitely has like, it has a different flavor than what you would get at most movie yes. theaters. And a lot of it is subtitled too, which so, I think in a lot of people, like for a lot of people, if a movie is subtitled, it's a foreign movie. <laughs> oh, well, and that's why too. It's a and shame. Like, but. I think um, like in a lot of awards, it's not best foreign film. It's best film presented in another language too. So some, some award shows do it that way. Anyway, it's an American but, film, but, but definitely th- feels... There are British films. Anyways, uh, yeah, so A Prayer Before <laughs> Dawn, Low Life, Let the Corpses Tan, Ghost Stories, The Ranger, and All the Creatures Were Stirring. Like, Ghost Stories... <sighs> ghost Stories might have felt the most American, but not... Like, it, it didn't feel American. It felt like a, again, just sort of like classic gothic ghost stories. Yeah, kind of like maybe like Hammer Horror in a way, or... Um... I'm not familiar with this, but a lot of people are saying that it's like an update on um, Amicus. 
like sure. amicus horror. I, I don't know what, exactly what that is. I, I feel I feel like I should know what that is since I'm <laughs> no. co-hosting or, a podcast. Or just do what I do on... and not mention things when I'm not sure what they are. Well, that's true. Um, yeah, so like... Just cut that out. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, so even though there might not have been like a very clear theme in the movies that we picked, again, some of them were just availability, what's actually streaming. Um, I, I feel like last year's Film Fest had maybe more experimental films. So, you know, like when we were talking about 2017 and there was a very heavy art theme driving it, 2018 felt very unique and very, yeah, a lot of these did end up online somewhere, but it felt like the kinds of movies that you just are not going to see at all in a theater. And again, that's one of the things that I love so much about Chat Film Fest is because of that unique experience. Yeah, and just based on this um, little sample of, uh, on the samples of the films that I watched from these different film fests, 2018, I think, feels like the strongest year um, with the movies that I watched. And it feels like it just gets progressively better and better with the quality of films that you get. Um, oh, it, it absolutely So, does. like, 2019 needs to bring it because 2018 was pretty damn good. <laughs> No pressure, Chris. Uh, all right. So I know that I already let, read through the list of all the movies that um, that I watched in 2018 at the beginning of the episode, but there's three or four that I at least want to briefly mention of just like, oh my God, here is even more examples of how kick-ass this festival was. Uh, first of them, Wolfman's Gotten Arts, which was the um, the Monster Squad documentary. It is one of the best and most solid documentaries I have ever seen. Like, I, oh, I, nice. I yeah, love cool Nightmares stuff. in Red, White, and Blue. I love Survival of the Film Freaks. There are a lot of documentaries that I absolutely love. Wolfman's got nards. And maybe it's just because of the, of the content and the fact that it is talking about Monster Squad. But holy crap, it is so freaking good like it really it has a beginning middle end it is telling a story yeah through the documentary it seems like it's got it's sort of like best worst movie but um like about a good movie and not a bad movie dude troll 2 is the best movie. okay well you know what i mean i know what you mean <laughs> uh yeah so wolf man's got nards is absolutely amazing if you have a chance to watch it like do not hesitate if especially if it's showing somewhere like mm. if you can see it in a theater do that and it's it, what's interesting to me about the movie i haven't seen it obviously but it's directed by andre gower who played sean in the movie Co- co-directed oh i'm sorry i thought i thought no it was um he was a, okay my bad no it's this other dude whose name i do not have pulled up because i wasn't <laughs> planning on like my bad i'm doing time. that thing where i bring things up where I'm, i don't have all the information um but yeah so anyway he co-directed it and uh the, like i find that really interesting because most of the time with a documentary it's more like people on the outside looking in and in this movie, you're actually getting a very, like, it is made by somebody with an insider's perspective on the film, which I think is, probably gives you a very unique perspective in terms of, like, documentaries about filmmaking. Okay, according to IMDb, directed by Andre Gower, but written by Andre and Henry Darrow McComas, McComas? I'm bad at pronouncing names. No, you're look, not. Look at IMDb, and it will show you the two writers. Um, is Shane Black in the documentary? He is, I think, pretty sure he is. I love Shane Black, but but yeah, um, with having with having Henry as um, part of that writing team, I feel like he also played a little bit of role in directing. Not taking anything away from Andre, but I feel like the 
I feel like the writing was what was driving the direction, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is why I was like, hold on. I don't think that he directed it himself. Again, nothing against his ability, but that other guy was also at the film fest. Uh, and again, Andre and Ryan were at the film fest. Um, talked to them very briefly. I was exhausted <laughs> when I went up to Andre. And so I probably sounded like I was just a drunk, drunk bumbling idiot. Cause I was like, Hey, I met you. You're good at things. Bye. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So you sound normally though. <laughs> well, I, mean, I know. Right. <laughs> There's nothing unusual about how that was just <laughs> phrased. Uh, but yeah, it's like they've become almost a permanent fixture at CFF. And, uh, you know, like Chris has posted a few times talking about the CFF BFFs and Ryan and Andre are absolutely part of the CFF BFF family because they just bring so much of that joy and excitement about cinema, both old and new. And they're they're a great part of the film fest. Um, all right. The next one that I wanted to mention was Summer of 84 which was directed by the same group that brought you Turbo Kid, but completely different style. Like, if you love Turbo Kid, this is different. If you love Stranger Things, this is more along those lines. Um, but they did make it before Stranger Things had become a phenomenon. And, the uh, like, um, I, want, I want to say it's RKO Pictures. Um, they were there, and they talked about how they made it before Stranger Things really hit. And if... If Stranger Things had been a thing, they probably wouldn't have done this movie because they didn't want to make something that was too derivative or they didn't want to make yeah. something that was just playing on uh, the new popular excitement of like, oh, 80s throwback is a thing. Well, it sounds like it has a little bit more of an edge to it than oh, Stranger it, it Things. Oh, it totally like does. Like it's maybe probably more, I, I think it's unrated, but um, like it probably would be R-rated if it had a rating. Yep. Because it, it goes to some really dark areas. Um, there were a few scenes that I was very, very tense. I don't know if there were necessarily any like jump scares, but there was a lot of tension. And it, it handles horror in a way that I think horror sometimes needs to be handled, where the ending shows some of the fallout of going through a horrific experience, rather than just like, yay, they caught the bad guy, the end, and... <laughs> And I, I don't want to see it all the time because it can be a little much to deal with on a consistent basis. But sometimes I do genuinely love it when horror movies give you the, but what happens next? And this is why, like, it's hard to get past a horrific traumatic experience. This shows some of that. And I think that that adds so much to the overall feel of the movie yeah i like that because i feel like a lot of horror movies you really like if you really think about it like these people are for the rest of their lives like they're yeah. going to be messed up and um yeah like i i feel like there are a lot of horror movies that refuse to acknowledge that and make you feel like you're getting some kind of happy ending or whatever you get some kind of resolution but really you know, if you actually followed these characters even further past the film, then you would see that there are probably going to be some severe, some, I cannot talk today, some very severe consequences. It's contagious. Um, yeah, there, there are some people who are not going to be happy with some of the things that happen towards the end of the film. Very understandably so. But it also makes sense within the context of the film. So, like, it, there, there's a lot of stuff to discuss. I don't want to give it any spoilers um, with it because it is absolutely an experience that I think any horror fan should watch. Um, but there are some things that are done that I, 
I don't think that they're done for shock value. I think that because of what you know about the character and what you find out about the villain over the course of the film, it makes sense that the villain would do what the villain does. And yeah, that adds to part of why it's so heartbreaking. And uh, yeah, very, very intense at the end. Um, All right. The next one that I wanted to mention, there's two more, this one and then the next one. Uh, I've already talked about this movie a ton, but going to keep mentioning it every time I have an opportunity. Tigers are not afraid. Holy crap balls. This movie. I want to see this so bad. God. Like I really, I cannot believe it's picked up so many. Like it won the uh, like uh, best feature award at Chat Film Fest for this year or for that year. Um, and yeah, like I just I want to see it so bad, but for some reason there's just still no way to to rent this film in the states. And I don't know if it's just they're still touring it or if they're still trying to get district. I don't know what the situation is, but like I want to see this movie. I need somebody to make this happen so I can see this movie. Yeah. It it is it is just completely heart-wrenching. Um like it was it was a really traumatic year for me with for movies in 2018 <laughs> apparently with things like A Prayer Before Dawn and Tiger's Not Afraid and even Summer of 84 to a certain extent. Like again, the fact that Low Life was one of the happier moments of the film festival, it was It was intense. Like you have to be a little emotionally prepared for some of the things that you're going to go through uh, with these movies. But again, like that's part of why you go to cinema is to have that experience and to have those emotions. And anyways, um, Tiger's Not Afraid is one of the best movies I've ever seen. It shows things that you typically do not see in movies for very understandable reasons, but it does it in such a way to where it is very intentional and not just exploitation and it, it has um, a cast of kids, but the kid actors are solid actors and it is, it's, it's hopeful and inspiring while at the same time being heartbreaking and just, it gives you all the feels. Like I hate to describe it that way because you know, the internet, but it does. <laughs> like you go through the range of emotions watching this movie. Like you will be laughing at one moment and then on the verge of tears the next. And it's, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. If you ever, ever have a chance to watch Tigers Are Not Afraid, absolutely do it. It is, it, it needs to be seen. Don't take your kids. It may have kids in it, but uh, yeah. It is not a kid's no. movie. No, <laughs> not even a little. All right. And then the last thing that I want to talk about, um, wrapping up our coverage of 2018, Dementia Part 2. <laughs> which I still haven't seen because of the same issue. I just can't watch it anywhere yet. I'm not going to say that it was the best movie of the film festival, but it was so, so much fun. Like the when, most enjoyable film of the film festival. It might've been one of the most enjoyable. Um, and I, I talked when we were talking about our 2017 coverage, how like part of what made that festival was um, like that, the 2017 festival was what started my friendship with Matt and Graham. And at the 2018 fest is when I actually got to, you know, like meet them and talk to them. And, uh, and they were on an episode of the podcast and Kevin Sluter joined along and like that led in my friendship with him and his wife, Jen. And like, I cannot, I, I don't think that I will ever be able to fully express my gratitude of being able to meet Matt and Kevin and Graham and they're just so much fun to talk to. And 
that's a, a, a tangent to dementia part two. Um, but like forming a closer connection to them at that film festival, I think played a huge role in the enjoyment of dementia part two, which was co-written and directed by uh, Matt Mercer and Mike Teston. And from, uh, I want to say that from conception to actual film was like two weeks yeah or or a month like so, it, it was saying it was like a really quick turnaround time to yeah make the film it was insane how quickly they wrote it shot it edited it like had a complete film absolutely insane and <laughs> sounds like just a fun creative exercise like just to see how quickly you can crank out a movie yeah and it's shot in black and white or like black and white sepia esh um graham has a bit part in it <laughs> And Graham wears a fanny pack. Um, oh, because he loves fanny packs. He's definitely getting one of our gargoyle fanny packs. You do not want that. You don't want that character to support us. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Graham, we want to support us, but I don't know about the character in the movie. That character's such a dick. I love it. Is it because of his fanny pack? No, it's like because he just has like, a chip on his shoulder. Because he, he's he, a parole officer with a chip on his shoulder, like complaining that uh, nobody likes Matt woke him pack. up at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's great. I love it so much. <laughs> So there is a dementia. Dementia part two has nothing to do with dementia. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. <laughs> so it's just, again, maybe not a perfect movie, but I legitimately cannot think of a single thing to complain about with it. Not that there aren't faults. There are definitely faults. There are definitely flaws. Matt, Mike, I love you guys. You know that it's not perfect. You wrote it and made it in a month. But it's one of those movies that just just enjoying what is happening in front of you. You don't care about the faults, you know, and it's just, God, it is so amazing. Uh, Suzanne Voss, who plays, uh, who plays Suzanne. I think, she, I think her character's name was Suzanne. Yeah. There's a character named Suzanne in the movie. <laughs> she, oh my God. At one point, uh, Matt is changing the lights like in, uh, in a ceiling fixture and she keeps flipping the lights on and off. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a mess with them. Oh my god, it's so good. Uh, Nashara Townsend is in it as well, and like that's about it. It had um, Matt Mercer, Graham Skipper, Nashara Townsend, Suzanne Voss, and oh, uh, she was in um, Dave Man Maze, right? Wait, am I thinking of the right person? No, you're thinking of someone else. Oh shit! Well, never mind. Um, oh no, she was in um, Feeding Time. That's what I was thinking of. Nashara Townsend was yeah. yes, um, and and a squirrel. Those are all the characters that you get yeah. in this movie. The squirrel is on the poster and has a name under his picture and yep. it says squirrel. Yep. So, yep. I definitely sounds like a movie that I need to see. I I genuinely love this movie so much and uh Matt Mike it, if it ever gets a wide release, um put me down for a pre-order of like 5. So you can give me one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm cool with that. Yeah. So put me down for two and put uh, Eric down for three because he owes me money. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. I I love Dementia Part 2. And again, it gives you some of that indie theater that you're not going to see on the big screen aside from film festivals, which is what I love so much. Um, all right. I, I think that pretty much covers everything from 2018. Yeah, I mean, there, there are more things fest. that we could talk about, but... We've covered a lot already. Yeah. You've got, I feel like the audience of this podcast, the audience of whoever, however many, you know, less than 10 or sure, whoever you are, you know who <laughs> you are out there. I feel like they probably have a pretty good snapshot. I know I have a pretty good snapshot of what to expect. And yet I also feel like it's probably going to be 
totally not what I'm expecting at the same time. So yeah. I'm, I can't wait. Well, you've also crammed three years worth of film festival-ish experience and viewing and discussion into the last month. Yeah. So like you've gone through a lot of prep work leading up to 2019. So let's talk about 2019 because uh, <laughs> we've already been saying a lot about the film fest. We've already been, um, we, we've already been basically going through the announcements that CFF has been releasing. So we talked about the wave one films. We talked about some of the events that they've teased. Uh, we've been talking about lady from the black lagoon um, written by Mallory O'Mara, mm -hmm. but now we get to talk about their second wave of films that have been announced. Yes. And I don't know if this is like the second of two parts, like if it was the first half and second half, or if there's another announcement coming after this. Um, I don't know. Yeah. The way, cause it, well, it says second half of 2019 lineup, so I, I think maybe that's it, but I don't know. It also says wave two on some of the stuff, so. Well, I mean, if there's only two waves, then that makes sense. So, yeah. so yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if this is going to be everything. Knowing Chris, I won't be surprised if there are some secret screenings. None mm -hmm. of them have been announced, and there might be so much that there might just, like, not be time for a secret screening, um, but... But yeah, uh, Wave 2 has been announced, and man, there there is a lot. Um, so I'm going to read through and at least give like, uh, you know what? I did this on the first one where I just read through the descriptions. I know that other people can use the internet and read, but since we did that on the first one, we'll do that on this. And we're probably not going to spend too much time actually talking about each of them specifically mm -hmm. because one of our upcoming episodes is going to be like us really focusing just on 2019 and talking about which ones we plan to be at yeah. and going into a little bit more depth. So here's the wave two announcement. Uh, Harpoon, directed by Rob Grant. It's the closing night film. Rob Grant will be in attendance along with producers Michael Peterson and Curtis David Harder. Um it's an honor to close out our sixth year with one of our favorite recent discoveries. Rob Grant's Harpoon is a brilliantly executed dark comedy that circles around three best friends who become stranded on a yacht. Synopsis is rivalries, dark secrets, and sexual tension that emerge when three best friends find themselves stranded on a yacht in the middle of the ocean under suspicious circumstances. So for that to be the closing night film, um, I'm I'm definitely curious as to why that's chosen to close out this year's film fest. Yeah, I know because I mean I don't really know. I don't, I'm not familiar with Rob Grant or any of his other films, and I don't know. I'm just I am very curious as well. Yeah, because you know, like the movies that start out the film fest definitely set the tone, but the movies that are chosen to end the film fest, like you know that that determines how you remember the rest of the fest. You know, like it it sort of. It bookends things. So yeah. That's, Maybe uh, at the end of the film, they're going to shoot a harpoon out into the audience and murder <laughs> one person. And it's like, yep, there you go. <laughs> Ending it with a bang. <laughs> wow. Ending things dark. Like they're dude. really putting an end. Like, done. We are done. Put a fork in you or a harpoon, whatever. I hope that like they have a cocktail party beforehand that all of the hors d'oeuvres have like little tiny harpoon toothpicks. Yeah. I'm, I'm down for that. <laughs> You just want hors d'oeuvres. 
I don't like hors d'oeuvres, whatever. <gasps> you are the worst. All right. Next up, Wild Rose, directed by Tom Harper. This year's Sonic Cinema block is packed with amazing films celebrating musical genres from black metal to punk rock to Memphis blues. And to those ranks, we're proud to add just a little bit of country in the form of Wild Rose. This film is a genuine charmer of a musical comedy drama that centers around a single mom fresh out of jail in Glasgow. Glasgow? Glasgow? Glasgow. I always mispronounce everything. I only know because Allie has been there and she, she told me. <laughs> she, had to, she had to explain to me how you pronounce it. Well, and it's one of those ones that, like, when you say, like, you know how to pronounce it, but as you're reading it, it's just like, did I just mispronounce, like, yeah. a very common <laughs> Scottish city? <clears throat> Whose dreams of becoming a Nashville star? Uh, Jesse Buckley's performance as the titular Rose Lynn truly seals the deal. The synopsis is a musician from Glasgow dreams of becoming a Nashville star. So, like, <laughs> the rest of the description makes a lot more sense than just the synopsis. Um, and I did watch the trailer, and it looks funny and very heartwarming and maybe a little bit uh, heartbreaking. It uh, it looks great. I haven't watched the trailer yet, so I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that after we watch the trailers <laughs> then. Modest Heroes, directed by Yushiyuki Mamose Akihiko Yamashita and Hiromasa Yonebayashi, I think. Are you just clapping because I finally pronounced? Yeah, names? you went. You got through all those names pretty. I mean, pretty well. Like you only stumbled a little bit, and uh, I'm proud of you. Well, good work. I, it's because I almost said Boniyasha, and I was like, nope. Start to the <laughs> Y, not a not B. That. <laughs> <laughs> that is another movie entirely. <clears throat> yep. All right, Studio Panak, the new animation studio founded by two-time Academy Award nominee. Yoshiaki uh, Nishimura, The Tale of Princess Naguya, when Marine was there, and featuring many artists from the venerable studio Ghibli, made an immediate splash with their acclaimed debut film, Mary and the Witch's Flowers, last year. The studio returns this year with Modest Heroes, an ambitious anthology of three thrilling tales created by some of the greatest talents working in Japanese animation today. Together, the stories Kanini and Kananu, Life Ain't Gonna Lose, Invisible, or sorry, and Invisible, explore ideas of heroism in everyday life. The infinite potential of the short film format allows the directors and Studio Panak to experiment with bre- breathtaking, action-packed visuals, concise human drama, and gorgeous fantasy worlds in this unforgettable showcase that is further demonstration of the studio's exciting future. Yeah, I can't wait for this one. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's an anime anthology. Uh, yeah. It's only like an hour long, too, so uh, we could probably get through it pretty quickly. Yeah. It I, just sounds like a nice, like fun, lighthearted way to... like. Because I feel like a lot of the movies are probably not going to be as lighthearted or family friendly. Nope. So uh, this will be like a good just like breather. Yeah, and with some of the uh, with some of the other animated films that they've shown in the past, like the animated stuff, it's not like childish. It is child friendly, yeah. but it's not juvenile. Like it is still very serious cinema. Um, and if it's anything like the ones they've shown in the past, like The Boy in the World or uh, Only Yesterday, can't wait. Yeah, I also need to watch more anime films because uh, that's a big blind spot for me. Well, we, we can do... I've only know, seen a few like Studio Ghibli films and stuff. You know, maybe like three or four. You've just determined what we're going to do during the month of May. Anime? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm t- I, like I was saying, I've, I've been thinking about May for a little while. I'm like, what can we do with May? There's so many possibilities. But yeah, anime. Yeah. That works. Let's do there, it. There we go. All right. Confessional, directed by Brad T. Gottfried. Uh, from direct, from director Brad T. Gottfried and producer Milan Chakraborty, my friend Dahmer and Assassination Nation, comes this twisty single room thriller. 
After two mysterious deaths at a college on the same night, seven students somehow connected receive invitations to a confessional booth hidden on campus. Their confessions slowly unveil the truth behind not only the deaths, the booth as well, not only the deaths, but the booth as well. The dark, twisty, dialogue-driven, and emotionally complex mystery is entirely confined to the video confessional. That sounds like it's either going to be a really awesome sort of like modern take on um, like House on Haunted Hill or it's going to be a bit found footagey and annoying. I don't know. Yeah, it seems it's like it definitely sounds like it has a found footage flavor to it. Um, I'm like, I'm not a huge found footage fan, but I do like the experimental approach that they're taking to this. Like, it sounds like it could be, I mean, as, if it's done well, it sounds like it could be really interesting. Yeah, like if it's done well, it feels like it could be a really awesome um almost like stage production style of horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's just more gimmicky, I, I am sure that it's going to be great, but I don't know. I just, yeah. I'm not a fan of found footage. So for me, stuff that is a bit found footagey. Well, I'm, I'm not even totally sure like what the miss, I mean, what the uh, genre is. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a horror thing or more like a drama. Like it's definitely, I mean, it says dark and twisty and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what genre it falls into. Yeah. Yeah, really curious to see uh, where that one goes. And, man, there are so many movies that there's no way we're going to get through all of them. I know, um, yeah. We won't, we'll have to miss some of them, unfortunately. But Yeah, and hopefully they will eventually be online, like some of the ones that we've been discussing, so we can eventually go back and do a post-2019 2019 episode. Yeah, you know, when we're leading up to 2020. (laughs) (laughs) We're not doing this each year. We're not following the same format because it would just be like, all right, so for the 2017 one, listen to the one that we did last year. (laughs) All right. Memphis 69, directed by Joe LaMattina. hi Sure. Resembling a southern fried Monterey pop, (laughs) Memphis 69 documents the 1969 Memphis Country Blues Festival thanks to the discovery of nearly 50-year-old footage acquired by legendary blues label Fat Possum Records. Shot over three days in the same venue where the Ku Klux Klan staged white power rallies, the festival displayed uh, how blues music could transcend turmoil and unite a crowd of strangers that had gathered to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Memphis, barely a year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in the city. Featuring performances by Johnny Winter... Buka White, Rufus Thomas, and many more. And then uh, the synopsis: A year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, a group of Memphis blues, a group of blues legends, came together to celebrate the 150-year anniversary of Memphis, Tennessee. This concert documentary, shot over three days in June of 1969, celebrates an American art form that unites us all. Um, I was watching some of the trailer about that one, and it just really made me want to listen to blues music again. Like I don't know how. I don't know if it's going to have like an actual documentary feel since it's more of just putting the footage together. So I don't mm-hmm. know if there's going to be an overarching story or if it's going to be more of just concert like, footage. Yeah. But even just watching the trailer, it's like, I need to listen to more blues. I need to watch the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you need to watch the trailer. Uh, all right. This next one I was actually, um, uh, this next one I was watching the trailer for and oh my God, it looks so awesome. Woman at War, directed by Benedict Erling- Erlingson. Yeah, I'm actually, this looks really good. Like, yeah. I haven't seen the trailer for it, but I've read a little bit about it, and it sounds like this year's, um, like, three billboards, maybe? It it has kind of that feel about it. Yeah. Uh, this film is a tightly wound thriller comedy drama that Variety hailed as near perfect, and the New York Times called an environmental drama wrapped in whimsical comedy and tied with a bow of midlife soul-searching. 
Hala is a 50-year-old environmental activist who crusades against the local aluminum industry in Iceland. As her actions grow bolder, her life changes in the blink of an eye when she's finally granted permission to adopt a girl from the Ukraine. Yeah, this one just it it has some of the it has some of that like dark comedy feel, but in a way that is very realistic and um, again kind of inspiring. Yeah, no, like I am um I'm really, really interested in seeing this film and I've heard like it's one that's already been screening at a few other fests and it's been getting like fantastic reviews. I think on Metacritic it has like an eighty one. Nice. I mean, which is pretty high for Metacritic, so Yeah. Uh, this next one you commented sounds like the kind of thing that you and I would make. <laughs> Dead Detectives, directed by Tony West. In our minds, comedy and horror are two genres that, when combined carefully and in the correct proportions, make something truly special. Very few films have managed to achieve this alchemy over the years. Ghostbusters springs to mind as a shining example. So when one gets it, please excuse the pun, dead right. <laughs> 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 Oh, my God. I love you guys. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> so when one gets it dead right, we have no choice but to follow all over ourselves and share with our CFF audience. Pulling off the truly incredible balancing act of weaving scarves... Uh, Pulling off the truly incredible balancing act of weaving scarves, laughs, and some serious heart into uh, one delightful package. Did you mean scares? Did I say scarves? You said scarves. <clears throat> you know so what? I like weaving hope. scarves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving it at weaving scarves. Do I need to take over the reading? <laughs> Maybe. I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> Pulling off no choice but to fall all over ourselves and share it with our... C uh, no, I can read. I know how to read. Pulling off the truly incredible balancing act of weaving scares, laughs, and maybe scarves, and some serious heart into one delightful package. We firmly agree with one of our favorite film critics, Meredith Borders, who called the film a nonstop blast and said, there's not a single beat that doesn't work in this hilarious spooky film, and that's a rarity indeed. Dead Detectives follows a team of hapless paranormal investigators on a reality TV series who go on a quest to Mexico's most haunted house in the pursuit of better ratings. However, uh, when the true dark secrets of the mansion begin to reveal themselves, the hapless presenters quickly discover that this house is no hoax. With zero ghost hunting skills, or really any other applicable skills, the team has to figure out how to bust the ghosts and escape the house with their lives. So that last sentence is hilarious, and also... I don't even need to watch a trailer for this movie. I'm going to read the tagline on the poster really quick just to, because I think this is like just the best way to sell the movie ever. Does All it right? say anything about scarves? It does not. So <laughs> here's the tagline. Interested. It says fake hunters, real ghosts, complete dicks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I'm all in on this movie at this point. Like with that pun of a title and that tagline, like definitely going to be seeing dead detectives. <laughs> That's so on board. That just looks amazing. Oh, my God. There are so many more to get through. Holy crap. Uh, God, there are so many more. All right. How many are? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen more movies plus the events. Holy crap. <clears throat> yeah, this is a lot of things. Jeez. Should we, um, should we abridge? the uh the reading of the maybe you could just skip to the synopsis part you know what the fact that i started saying that it weaves scarves <laughs> <laughs> and at this point we've been podcasting for a while this is a very long episode um 
Yeah, we. I I hate to like shortchange any of the stuff, um, but yeah, I'll just read the uh, the names of the movies, and if any of them have things like people that are going to be in attendance, I'll mention that. Let's do that. And if you have, I mean, if you're interested in any of the movies that we talk about, go to chatfilmfest.org, look at the schedule, or at least just look at this announcement for these waves, and there's tons of information on it. Yeah. So. And and again, um the not the next episode next episode we have uh is something special lined up but the episode after that we are going to be going through and like talking about all of the films in as much detail as we can based off of the information that we have uh and we're going to be going through and talking about you know based off the previews based off the trailers what are the ones that we plan on going to what are the ones that we're really excited about so you're going to get a little bit more detail in not next episode but the following episode um so yeah, I can probably stop reading all the descriptions. I didn't realize how many there were when yeah, I started. Yeah, there are a lot. <laughs> there are quite a lot of movies. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. A Bread Factory Part 1 and Part 2, directed by Patrick Wang. Um, and I was trying to see if there were people who were going to be there. I don't see any listed. But I don't say this. Uh, Matt Zoller Seats and RogerEbert.com summed things up perfectly when he reviewed a Bread Factory. Sorry, of Roger ebert.com some things up perfectly when he reviewed a bread factory part one and a bread factory part two quote the most original film going experience of the year as thorough and thoughtful a statement of on art and life as any american filmmaker has given us so that could be a thing i don't know what it's about well it says that so it's about uh let's see after 40 years of running their community art space the bread factory dorothy and greta are suddenly fighting for survival when a celebrity couple Performance artists from China come to Checkford and build an enormous complex down the street, catapulting big changes in their small town. I still don't know what it's about. Yeah, especially <laughs> with the suddenly fighting for survival. I wonder if that means like survival of art in their community or if this goes or in like literally a completely like, unexpected horror yeah, route. I don't know. Um, it does say that it's comparable to um, works of Robert Altman, Ingmar Bergman, and David Lynch. So uh, probably not... Uh, mainstream entertainment. We're just gonna go with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything where that's the uh, the three people that you're pulling together as this is what it's like. Yeah, mm, yeah, I might need to see. And that. it was filmed in 16 millimeter, which is um very um tantalizing for me. Like I'm I'm curious to see this. Just sure. like what they do with it. So anyway, uh, the girl on the third floor, directed by Travis Stevens, and. This one, he produced Buster's Malheart, which they've screened uh, before. They've mm -hmm. also che uh, screened Cheap Throws, but I didn't see that one. But Buster's Malheart was it, was, it was a really, really solid film from 2017. We didn't talk about it because there were just so many movies that we were already talking about. Um, but that one starred Remy Malek. And uh, yeah, it's it, it was a solid film. So yeah, to and see him directing something i'm interested to see where it goes yeah and travis stevens he's a um, he's a pretty prolific producer he did like mohawk uh xx 24 by 36 uh starry eyes jodorowsky's dune like he's done quite a lot of um like pretty well-known you know low-budget genre film kind of stuff uh so this is his directorial debut and it um premiered at south by southwest a few weeks ago to some pretty good reviews um definitely definitely interested in seeing this Apparently so it's got he, some cronenbergian uh style body horror and yeah well and he obviously has uh like great taste in awesome movies in terms of what to put his money behind mm -hmm. so definitely interested to see how he does on the uh, director side of things 
All right. Manos, directed by Alejandro Landis. Landis? Sure. Yeah, um, you got it. Yeah. The Guardian called filmmaker Alejandro Landis Manos Apocalypse Now on Shrooms. So, sold. Yep. That's it. That's all I need to know. <laughs> yep. Also, the synopsis is um, um, like so concise and so intriguing. It's on a faraway mountaintop. Eight kids with guns watch over a hostage and a conscripted milk cow. So it's double a good thing. sold. It's a good thing that you read that one because my ability to read is very rapidly going downhill. I read that as a constipated milk cow. Um, hmm. I'm trying to decide which movie sounds better, <laughs> constipated milk cow or conscripted. Constipated. Uh, probably constipated, but <laughs> I think conscripted. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to say Monos is probably better than whatever that movie is. Uh, <clears throat> the Night Shifter, directed by Denison Ramallo, uh, presented by Shudder. Dino, the night shifter of a morgue, I've gone back to reading things, uh, has the ability to communicate with the cadavers that are brought to him every night. Yeah, this sounds kind of like um, the autopsy of Jane Doe, but with a more overt supernatural element of being able to talk to dead people. Um, kind of like the sixth sense or uh, oh, there's some something else that's coming to mind. I can't think of what it's called, but um, I don't know much about that. I haven't watched the trailer either, but it's presented by Shudder and uh, definitely interested in where they're taking that story yeah that i i hope that like at one point it's just like talking about whatever what they had for lunch before they died like i hope that some of the conversations <laughs> are just very mundane ghost box cowboy directed by john maringuin 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 m-a-r-i-n-g-o-u-i-n Variety magazine called filmmaker john mm-hmm. ghost box cowboy <laughs> fear and loathing and the chinese economic miracle wow Yep. That's a description you don't hear every day. <laughs> that, that is, uh, yeah. Uh, Sadistic Intentions, directed by Eric Pennykoff, with Eric Pennykoff and Jeremy Gardner in attendance. Woo. We talked about this one from the Knoxville Horror Film Fest, where it had its world premiere. Holy crap, I love this movie. It's fantastic. If you're going to Chat Film Fest, please try to see this film, because I think it's one of the best things that came out of Knox Horror Fest. Um absolutely love it and uh eric pennykoff is awesome and he's going to be there and jeremy gardner will be there who he was not in attendance at knox horror but, but taylor zodka was yes. so we get to complete the uh the trifecta of people involved <laughs> in the making of this movie no there was that other dude there was the other guy that kind of reminded us of Cl- crispin glover so we're yes. just going to get the real crispin glover <laughs> instead <laughs> oh my god that would be awesome um yeah, not to oversell it, because, you know, we, we try to keep expectations real, because we don't want you to think that it's, like, the most amazing movie in the world, and then just be like, yeah, it was okay, like Eric tends to do with movies. Yep. Um, but having seen this one before, I can absolutely recommend it. The The only way that I'm not going to be, um, that I'm not going to be attendance for Sadistic Intentions is if it's up against something that is just like, holy crap balls, I have to attend it. And yeah. yes, I realize that's the second time I've used that saying in this episode, I don't care. Like, it, it's going to have to be something pretty spectacular to get me to not watch Sadistic Intentions again because I, I love it so much and I don't know when I'm going to have another opportunity to see it. Yeah. So it's... It is absolutely at the top of my, like, yep, got to see it list. For sure. And, yes, Eric, you're awesome. Oh, Not you. Oh, Eric Pennykoff. No. Okay, well, Eric is awesome, so that's that's okay, Nathan. Mango Shake, directed by Terry Chu. 
Set in the window of a single summer, Mango Shake is a glance into the bonds formed, lost, and held onto between kids hanging around a lemonade stand. But instead of lemons, it's mangoes. I looked at this one up on Letterboxd, and one of the reviews, um, so I guess it's been screening at other places, one of the reviews said that it is like a uh, like Jim Jarmusch's version of Clerks. Huh. So I was like, yeah, that sounds like a movie that's totally, totally up my alley. Um, definitely interested in seeing this. I, I just like the name Mango Shake. And Mango Shake, yeah, like what a great name for a movie. It's my new nickname. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mango Shake, what's the next movie? <laughs> Freaks, directed by Zach Lepofsky and Adam B. Stein. In this genre-bending psychological sci-fi thriller, a bold girl discovers a bizarre, threatening, and mysterious new world beyond her front door after she escapes her father's protective and paranoid control. There are a lot of adjectives. <laughs> there are. In that description, and uh, they are all very enticing adjectives. They are, and I still don't know anything about the movie, but I love these high-concept sci-fi kind of movies, so uh, I'm, yeah, I want to see this. And also, it's funny to think that this is the follow-up to a movie that was <laughs> from the directors of the Kim Possible Disney Channel original movie that's about to come out, or Man, maybe just came out. There's no way that I'm going to watch it and not think that it's just like the sequel to Kim Possible. <laughs> right. Well, plus it has Emil Hirsch and Bruce Dern in it, so it's got a pretty nice cast. Yeah. I, I wonder how, like, I wonder how family-friendly it's going to be. I know that it's not what you would expect with based off the description and it has, it's a genre bending psychological sci-fi thriller, but I wonder if that means that it's like going super dark and like, don't take the kids or if it's going to be, Hey kids, like here's a good introduction into amazing things in the cinematic world. Yeah. Cause it almost sounds kind of like a, like a Spielberg film or something like close encounters or with a little more magical realism thrown in something. I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Cowboy Who, presented by Peter <laughs> Kaplowski. <laughs> there is a question mark in that title, there in is. case you couldn't tell. CFFBFF and oh, TIFF buddy. Midnight Madness film programmer Peter Kaplowski will be on hand to present this retrospective look at one of the strangest and most magical children's television shows of all time, complete with an all-you-can-eat Saturday morning cereal bar. Um, that cereal bar alone is enough to make me definitely consider. I have no idea what they're talking about, but, uh, they're talking about cowboy who is that the name of the show? I, or God, is that, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever it is. I, um, can consider me, uh, now here's, here's my question. And this is a genuine question. Are they serious about the all you can eat cereal bar? <laughs> because if this is going to be a Saturday morning cereal bar, uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either so many people are going to be hungover from Friday night that it w- really will be all you can eat because everyone is still going to be sleeping it off. Or everyone is going to show up and like need some serious food to get over their hangovers. Um, so there will either be a plethora of cereal or it'll be gone in five minutes. Yeah, we should definitely um, send a question in to uh, <laughs> to determine like how... How loosely define how, how loosely do you define the term all you can eat? Yeah, how all you can eat is it? Because uh, <laughs> all you can eat buffets are very rarely all you can actually eat. Anywho, the fair by DC Hamilton. Uh, when a charming fair named Penny climbs into his taxi cab, Harris, her world weary driver, finds himself engaged in the only kind of courtship he can have with a passenger, one that lasts as long as her trip. 
That is, right up until she disappears from the backseat without a trace. When confusion gives way to reality, he resets his meter and is instantaneously transported back to the moment when she climbed into his cab. Uh, yeah, I actually think this sounds pretty terrific. Like, it kind of sounds like a cross between Before Sunrise and, um, like, Groundhog Day or I, something. I was thinking Groundhog Day mixed with, um, I, I don't know. I pretty much, anytime something. something is romantic, I pretty much always take it back to Before Sunrise just because, like, that is my ideal romantic film. So, uh, that's, that's where I'm going and uh, definitely, I, I really want to see this movie, like, just based on that premise alone. Yeah, it, it seems it seems magical. All right, this next one, I have to read the entire description just because of the things that are in all caps at the end of it. <laughs> Suburbia, directed by Penelope Spheris from 1983. This unbelievable early 80s punk rock mega blast follows a group of semi-homeless outsider teens played by actual semi-homeless outsider teens in their nonstop war against parents, rednecks, cops, society, and each other. Authentic and relentlessly entertaining, it's packed with comedy, action, power, pain, and amazing performances from both the cast and the best bands of the era. From the director of legendary music doc The Decline of Western Civilization, Suburbia is not only the best fictional movie movie ever made about punks, it's legitimately one of the greatest films of all time. See it or die. <laughs> no, I really like I've heard great things about this movie for such a long time. I've never seen it before. So if I can make it to a screening of this, I'm definitely, definitely down to watch this. Also, Penelope Spheres directed Wayne's World um, and Black Sheep, <laughs> which I don't think Black Sheep is wait, quite wait, wait, a classic. Wait. Black Sheep, like the Chris the, Farley movie. Okay. Not, not the, the UK zombie sheep yes, one. Not that one. Okay. Uh, and she directed The Little Rascals and The Beverly Hillbillies. That's weird. I didn't know that. Huh. Anywho. Um, yeah, I really want to see this. Or die. Yeah, and I don't want to die, so definitely I'm, I'll be in attendance. The Dead Center, directed by Billy Senesi? Sneeze? Sneeze? Man, you would think that, like, with me being smart and stuff, I could say words, but names are difficult. <laughs> we need to just, like, give everybody the same name, just so it's not <laughs> so hard on Nathan. <laughs> Or just uh, steal um, Kyle's joke that he stole from someone else. It's pronounced fire truck. It's just not spelled that way. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A hospital psychiatrist's own sanity is pushed to the edge when a frightened amnesiac patient insists that he has died and brought something terrible back from the other side. That sounds... That sounds awesome. And it stars Shane Carruth, who is uh, the director of Primer and Upstream Color, which are movies that I really, really enjoy. And um, so hopefully we can fit this into the schedule too. CFF 2019 Shorts Program. Also being rolled out now are the many masterful short works that make up the CFF 2019 Shorts Program, comprised of five jam-packed blocks of different types of short films, culminating in Sunday's traditional Tennessee filmmaking showcase. Highlights of this year's program include new works by CFF fan favorites Izzy Lee, Stephen DeGennaro, and Tim Rice, as well as exciting new short works from newcomers Meredith Alloway, Will Goss, and many more. This year's Shorts Program is truly the equal of our carefully curated feature lineup. Those are some pretty cool people they've got on there. They got Tim Rice who did Bad Blood, which we talked about, which is so much fun. Twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um, and then Stephen De Janeiro who directed Found Footage three D, which I have not seen. Um, it is one of the only found footage movies that I genuinely love. Well, and I'm a huge fan of Scott Weinberg, and he was a producer on the film, and I think he's in it too. And uh, so I uh, I need to catch up on some of this stuff in case I run into him. 
and Izzy Lee directed My Monster, which screened before all the creatures were stirring, which we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also did the sociopolitical themes in horror. The oh, okay, talk cool. That uh, she did at 2018. Uh, and then the events and workshops. The Pumpkin Pie Show presented by Clay McLeod Chapman. For over 20 years, author Clay McLeod Chapman and his rigorous storytelling session, The Pumpkin Pie Show, have offered a view into the minds of the most depraved Southern Gothic monstrosities. Sometimes darkly humorous, sometimes strangely heartbreaking, and most definitely always in your face, these tales of madness and macabre explore the domestic horrors of the everyday finding terror within our very own households. The one-of-a-kind performance delves deep into the darkest recesses of those madmen and women who drift along the periphery of humankind. Still not sold, the Scotsman says Clay McLeod Chapman is like Stephen King transmogrified into a post-punk preacher poet. Fuck, I wish I could come up with descriptions that awesome. What a great, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, that description alone, def, uh, uh, I've said this pretty much about everything that we've talked about. I want to go to it, but yeah, I want to go that, to everything. That one sounds amazing. I think that I might be even more excited for this next one. Destroy All Movies, the <laughs> Punks on Film panel, presented by Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly. 20th century punk historians and full-time goonbag Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly attack the audience with ludicrous and completely impossible facts and fictions of Hollywood versus the punk rock movement when horror films and party comedies become infested with mohawks and mayhem, including a special punk clip show from Everything is Terrible. <laughs> I, I have to be at that one. <laughs> there Again, there's going to have to be something pretty big to, uh, to keep me out of that one. Uh, a pitch workshop led by David Lawson Jr., um, where, you know, you're talking about how to pitch a film. Funding your film with investors presented by Stephen DeGenero, uh, where he's talking about funding your film with investors. I think on the, is that the one where you have to have a uh, screenplay, like... One of them has said it recommended you have a finished screenplay to bring with you. Well, like that's the thing on some of these um, workshops is like they're actual workshops for filmmakers. So some of them are just people who are interested in some of the inner workings or <laughs> like that uh, destroy all movies, the punks on film panel. Like that just seems like it's right up my alley in terms of horror and punk rock and uh, just, you know, backstories about certain movies. Mm. But then some of the other ones like I, I don't have anything worked up in terms of actually making a movie. I don't know if I ever will make a movie. So like some of the other panels, as fascinating as they are, they might not be as relevant to me. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the things that I love so much about the Film Fest is it's not just for people who want to watch movies. It's also very heavily for people who want to make those movies. Mm. And I love the, uh, the title of the next workshop, Ipman or IP Man. Protecting your film's intellectual property. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Presented by uh, Barham and Marcier, LLC. So, yeah, like, it's getting into some of the legality of how to actually protect your intellectual property. So, like, even just those three workshops alone, uh, how to pitch a film, how to fund your film, and how to protect your intellectual property, anyone interested in making a movie or even just a short film needs to be at all three of those. Chattanooga Whiskey Cocktail Competition. I don't need to say anything else about that. It's Chattanooga Whiskey Cocktail Competition. <laughs> I mean, if you don't understand those four words together, <laughs> then I, it's I probably don't... not for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what to say. Uh, in addition to the lineup above, CFF is also announcing the rest of their parties, including an opening night heavy metal madness party celebrating heavy metal and cinema, complete with themed cocktails crafted by the bar at the Moxie. One of them is called Megadeth. Metal face painters, so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love it when I don't read things before I talk about them and I get like giddy in the middle of it because I'm just <laughs> surprised. Metal Face Painters and other opening night mayhem to celebrate CFF's 2019 Metal Selections, Sadistic Intentions, and Lords of Chaos. Back again is the annual I'm Okay, You're Okay, Volume 4. Our pals, the talented brewmasters at the Chattanooga Brewing Company, will be generously hosting the... Um, Brewmeisters at the Chattanooga Brewing Company will be generously hosting the festival's now traditional karaoke party. Join us as we sip on some of the finest local brews and tastiest snacks our city has to offer and deeply and irrevocably butcher hours of classic tunes with the help of our special CFF KJ. <laughs> yeah, so um, if this is the last announcement, like if that is everything that's going to be at CFF, Based off of the things that they teased, the uh, Wave 1 announcement and this announcement, holy crap, I don't think I could be more excited for this year. Yeah, I know. And like, I'm almost to a point where I'm like, okay, I really hope this is the full lineup because like, I don't think I can handle any more yeah. at this point. Like, This is already so much and I want to do all of it that like to add more and to like try to crowd out some of these other movies that would be dis- like disappointing, even though I'm sure the, any other movies they add would be fantastic. Like. I already have so much on my plate. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and I don't know if they're going to have like the actual schedule out by the time that um, we do our episode on what are the things that we're most excited about. Because, I mean, we've talked about all of them, but we're going to do an episode where like we've actually watched all the trailers. We've actually like done some plotting and some planning to really think about what are the things that we are, you know, we're going to do our best to get to. Um hopefully the schedule is out by then so that we can actually say this is where we plan to be. But if not, then um, it's all going to be a bit of a crapshoot of this is what I really want to see. But man, it's happened to me in the past and I'm not going to be surprised if it happens this year. Like two of the things that I will be the most excited about going to are going to be pitted right up against each other. And I'm going to have like just an internal conflict of which thing because i want all the things mm-hmm. and maybe we could yeah. split up and report back on individual thing like on one or the other i'm sure that's going to happen but there's going to be things that i just do not want to miss yeah so yeah i hope it's gonna be rough it will be but, but totally worth it super excited <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's been our coverage of 2018 and uh, our last preview of 2019 in terms of, like, very light previews. Can we say that these have been light previews? We've been talking a lot about some of them. Yeah, it's well, it's just there's so much. They're light previews of lots of things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, next episode. Next episode is something special. Um, we We plan on having a very special guest that I'm not going to say who just yet, just in case things fall through. I don't want to be like, "Oh, this is absolutely happening, and then like a very important meeting come up last minute and like just not be able to get it uh, worked in. But our plan is to have a very special guest on the next episode. <clears throat> the episode after that is going to be our final episode before CFF, mm-hmm. where again, Maybe we don't talk about as many of the films because we've already said all of them, but we talk specifically about which ones we uh, plan on seeing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, yeah, I I think that's it. Yeah. Man. We're all, I think we need to go hibernate for a little while now to prepare ourselves for the onslaught of just so many movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I... Eric, where do you want people to find you while you're uh, hibernating? Find me on Twitter at the Chimerican and on Instagram <clears throat> at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterboxd at Eric J A Y. 
And you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at The Gargoyle Podcast, on Twitter at Gargoyle Podcast, and on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. And if you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to the rest of our CFF 2019 coverage, um, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, just do a search for The Gargoyle Podcast. That's G-A-R-G-Y-L-E because it is a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater because I'm an idiot and I'm proud of it. It's never, <laughs> As you should be. It's never going to change. <laughs> um, and uh, remember that um, submissions for Knoxville Horror Film Fest are open. Um, we mentioned that at the beginning of the episode, but you know, this, this is a new thing for us to say. So I'm mentioning it again that Knoxville Horror Film Fest and Central Cinema are now sponsors of the Gargoyle Podcast. So they support us. We support them. You should support them too because they are awesome people. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you were looking at me. I wasn't prepared. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, like, was off, I was lost like, in thought. shut up, Nathan. I am so done with words. <laughs> All right. That's been it for this episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. the Gargoyle. And I'm Eric, a.k.a. the Chimerican. And remember, kids, go to the Chat Film Fest. You will only have like a few weeks left, April 11th through 14th. Do not wait. There's so many different levels of badges. If you only can attend one movie, just buy one ticket. If you can attend more than one, they have the Dabbler, which you can go to four films. Uh, that does not include workshops. But some of the workshops are being presented for free because people actually supported them and contributed to their fundraiser. So in whatever way you can, support Chattanooga Film Festival and attend and watch all the movies and do all the things and support Central Cinema and Knoxville Horror Film Fest and support us. Yes, we thank you for your patronage. We, people have been patronizing you? Those jerks. <laughs> I should have seen this coming. <laughs> <sighs> I need to plan out. I need to write myself a script before all of these podcasts to make sure I don't throw in some word that Nathan <laughs> can turn into a pun. Good luck with that. <laughs> Yeah, I won't have the foresight to, to catch all of those ahead of time. Well, I mean, even if you have foresight, I'll have five sight, so it's, it's not going to happen. All right. I'm done. We've talked so long. <laughs> We're out of words now. Come back next time. I'll be sure not to. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> not you, the listeners. You, the co-host. All right, bye. Former co-host. <laughs>